Welcome to the Pure Cinema Podcast. My name's Howard Kane, and I just lost at Paper, Rock, Scissors <laughs> to decide who would introduce the first episode. And sitting with me is Brian Sauer. Hello. Of Rupert Pupkin Speaks, a fantastic blog. Yes. Uh, well, not that, yes, it's a fantastic blog, but yes, that is me. Uh, that was pretty conceited, man. You're just starting <laughs> starting a first episode saying, yeah, I have a great blog. It's amazing. It is a tremendous blog. Everything um, I say will be gold. So we are here doing a podcast brand new. Uh, both of us fairly techno illiterate, but we are going to do the best we can. Um, pure cinema, huh? Yeah, it's already been a learning experience. It has been. So this is something, um, you know, uh, I for those who, this is the first time you've ever heard me, uh, I, I'm, I'm one of the people on a podcast called Shockwaves, and it was called Killer POV before that. Which oh. is where I first heard you. Yeah, horror podcast, uh, and we're still doing it. Um, but Great show. Uh, thanks, man. Uh, I really wanted to talk about other movies, too. All sorts of movies, exploitation, horror, you know, dramas, weepies, whatever you want to say. And uh, there's literally no one on earth that I wanted to talk movies with more than you. Oh, that's very kind. Uh, your site's brilliant. And you're always, the, the thing is, I think we both are on the same wavelength of wanting to share titles that we love, movies, the passion we have for movies, and your site's constantly updating like what's being released, both old and new. You're always uh, doing film discovery lists, which is one of the ways we connected in the first you know, place, and I always love making that list for you, you know? Yeah, it's a fun, it's been fun getting people involved, because the site has really gone way beyond me, and as far as the contributors, I mean, it's like one-eighth me, maybe, you know, I mean, because so many people that I've found through Twitter and other um, places online have really given it that extra life of its own, and given so many recommendations that even my, I myself am still trying to catch up on. So. Yeah, it becomes a community spot. Exactly. And I think anything you start with passion or love and then kind of let go a little, or at least let go enough to let people in, takes on a life of its own. Um, we're you know, we're going we're gonna to use this episode to um, get to know each other because one of the cool ideas I had in my mind with something like this is when I started Killer POV, I knew uh, Rebecca McKendry pretty well. And I didn't know Rob Galuzzo at all. So you're starting a show where you basically have a number of episodes where you're just getting to know the people. Uh, and then, you know, 160 episodes later, you know, we probably know each other pretty well by now. Me and you only have met a couple, you know, a handful of times in our lives. We know each other in an internet way. But I figure, like, by doing a film podcast together, we're going to get to discuss things and still have fresh ideas and opinions. And it could be really fun. Well, that was one of the things I, I loved about Killer POV when I first started listening was... I mean, I think I told you, I, we were just talking about it, I maybe discovered the show, you guys were 30, 40 episodes in, but it was still hearing that sort of bonding, that friendship developing between you and Rob and Rebecca, and that is a really fun journey to go on, and I hope that this will be a similar thing, where people are listening to us get to know each other, and they're getting to know us at the same time, and there's something, I, I don't know, hopefully pleasurable about that. Yeah, and uh, like we, we're going to be upfront about this. One thing that I, after doing 160 or, or so episodes of a, of a format that's pretty consistent, you know, uh, on those sh the shows I've, I've been on, you've been on a bunch of different podcasts. In my experience, we've largely had a, um, we talk about what we've seen that week or a theme, and then the second half of the show is an interview. Uh, one thing we've discussed is really not sticking to a definitive pattern, but trying to do a lot of different things and, and stay as fresh and have as much fun with it as we possibly can. Uh, and I think there will be a pattern emerge, but it won't be the same kind of thing each week. 
Yeah, I, I like I do like this idea. I mean, I think you and I are both big podcast fans, and I get that a lot of people go to podcasts for regularity and consistency, and we'd like to offer that. But I think another reason people go to podcasts, hopefully, is because they enjoy listening to whoever is doing it talk about what they're talking about. And so the structural thing will come, but hopefully, you know, you'll just get a sense of how much we like movies and what we want to turn people on to and we'll go from there sort of. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think your website, your blog, I think will have a little bit of a, um, offer a little bit of direction if people are wondering. I think things like discovery lists and top fives and, uh, us focusing on a, a singular year or something like that. This kind of stuff people can expect. Uh, I don't think we'll be an interview heavy show, but we definitely want to add that part when we can. And we definitely want to get, uh, start getting, you know, our listeners once we have listeners. <laughs> this is the first episode. Uh, all three of you, uh, we, we want to include, you know, lists you make on certain topics and stuff. So uh, that's kind of like uh, the, the plan uh, for the show. Um, Pure Cinema, why the name, Brian? Um, well, you know, it just, it was the one that rang the most true for what we wanted to do, I think. It's just all about movies and all kinds of movies. And that was the thing. I know when I'm listening to you on Shockwaves or Killer POV, I often hear you trying to break out of the horror and wanting to talk about other yeah. things. So part of me was always like, well, I'd love to hear him on another show where he's just talking about movies and not just horror movies. I, th- I think I got bit. The bug was actually doing a few guest spots on Projection Booth and getting to go like two hours deep on a movie and you suddenly go, oh, I, I love that feeling. Not all the time. Like I think what Mike White, who does the Runs Projection Booth, does is uh, it's martyrdom, <laughs> you know, like the fact that he can do that weekend, the amount of research he has to do, but it's nice to, you know, guest spot. Um, yeah, that's a great show. And um, he obviously puts so much time into every episode. Um, we won't be putting quite as much. Yeah, we maybe occasionally do something like that. That would sure. be fun, like every once in a while. Uh, and yeah, like and people, when I first started, say, I started saying pure cinema a lot. Uh, at first, it was just naturally uh, when I was on Shockwaves, and eventually people started catching on. I didn't need, when you're doing podcasts, if, if for anyone who, who does it, you'll say stuff and you'll never remember what you say. So people will like tweet at us, you know, some quote you said, and you'll have no memory of it. And pure, pure cinema is one of those, but I do... Uh, you know, I, I, like I spent, you know, we both spent our whole life probably being obsessed with film, and I and I genuinely believe there are certain films and definitely certain sequences of of most movies where a movie does what only movies can do, not what any and and you know, uh, cinema is a bastardization of every art form. So because it's stolen from every art form, when it mixes and blends all those things together at once, and none of the other art forms could possibly do it, that to me is pure cinema. It's it's I want to say it's visual storytelling, but it's more than that because sometimes it's sonic and oral, but it's you know it when you're seeing it, and there's nothing cooler. It's kind of like love, <laughs> you know it when you're in it, and I feel like there are moments, um, you know, the ones that jump out at me. I remember there's a moment in the third man where Harry Lyme, which is Orson Welles' character, is trying trying to escape, and he's underground, and he's about to be killed, but he puts up his he puts his fingers up between these the the slates of a like pothole or whatever, and he feels the air on his fingers from above the ground. And there's something in that moment that it's, you know, it's quiet, it's visual, and it's so emotional, but you can never get that moment across in any other art form. And I, I just remember, that's like the first thing that I think of is that moment. It's one of those moments in movies where I'm like, oh yeah, it's pure cinema, that baby. You know, uncut, that is, you know, this is why we fall in love with movies. And I do think, um, you know, like that old Stan Brackage moth light idea that we are like, moths to the flame with movies even if it just like some filmmakers it tears them up and you're so obsessed but i wouldn't have it any other way i couldn't 
you know it's 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 not a conscious choice i think to be fall in love with movies in the way in the way we have yeah and i also think that the lovely thing about them is that once you fall into that love it's a lifetime or it can be a lifetime not commitment that makes it sound too obligatory but just you you can spend your whole life and never see everything and you're if you're really oh, yeah. into it you'll just go and go and go until you die yeah, that's the the greatest thing about cinema is every year, and that's one of the things I love about your film discovery list is every year I'm going to discover at least five truly terrific, maybe masterpiece level to me films. Uh, sometimes more, sometimes less. Sometimes they're obscure, so you'll put up the list and people are like, oh, cool, it's an obscure list. And sometimes they're things that everyone else has seen, but you just hadn't. You know, uh, one of the biggies for me, I hadn't seen Lawrence of Arabia on purpose my whole life because I wanted to see it on a screen. And then I saw it in, you know, 70 millimeter at the theater in LA called The Egyptian. And it's, it's like as close as we get to magic to have that experience, especially as an adult, you know, who's already seen a lot of movies. As kids, it's all magical. Most of those initial experiences we got were just like, you know, you can't, you, we're all, I think we're all kind of chasing the dragon in our later, especially in horror films and things, wanting that feeling of, oh man, that first time I saw that thing, the way it made me feel and scared, but excited and turned on. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Yeah, no, it's funny because horror movies, I find, are a gateway to larger cinema obsession for a lot of people. And I feel like there's a lot of horror fans who are ready to jump in with both feet and see cult movies, um, which is another thing we'll probably end up talking about a yeah. lot on the show. Um, that are just a little left of horror uh, sometimes, but horror fans can appreciate that visceral. I don't know what it is exactly, but 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 a lot of the cult movies have that. They have this. They leave this indelible impression on you, like a good horror movie does. So I feel like one of the things I wanted to do with the show, if we can, is always kind of keep people. I mean, we'll be talking about new movies, but we'll also be talking about a lot of older cinema. You know, um, not necessarily ancient. Maybe we'll talk about some of those. Uh, I have a love of all kinds of stuff, as do you. But um, I feel like the thing that people have, the, the, the problem that they have now, if you want to call it that, is that uh, an embarrassment of riches as far as movies go. You, there's so much available. How do you choose? Where do you go? Who do you, you know? And I think a lot of people end up sticking to a lot of newer stuff, which is great. I love supporting new cinema, but I feel like there's so much to dive into and seek out that um, you just need a few, you know, books or people to kind of point you in the right direction, and that's what I'd love to do with the show. Well, I mean, yeah, we used to have video stores, especially, I mean, especially for horror and cult cinema. You know, you'd spend that that time perusing, and and it's not just one graphic. Like I think people go, oh, but Netflix is the same because there's images. It's not the same. There's a tactile feeling of picking up that uh, box and looking at the back and the way it's worded and the taglines, and it and you have time to reflect and think and write things down, and uh, it's just very different. And I agree. I think I'm the more I gravitate towards uh, podcasts and things of this nature, whether it's books that you know point out very specific uh, things to check out. Uh, one more thing, because you started talking about it. One thing that definitely I think bonded us and maybe probably made this happen was your work. Been working on a uh, documentary on Danny Perry, who wrote the mo- the book Cult Movies. Yeah, and that just and you and you were kind enough to ask me to be on it, but without even really knowing that that book was one of my first gateway. I think it was the first, not the first book to get me into movies, but the first one to get me into a certain type of movie and curious about. Probably definitely towards art house and exploitation stuff. Where before that it would have been like eighties horror. You know, so Gary Wrath of God and El Topo and movies like that, that just, it, it started the, um, I think the curiosity that leads you from film to film. And 
I think that's really cool. And so we've definitely discussed, you know, maybe covering some of the uh, key movies discussed in that book over time, maybe, you know, dedicating whole episodes to certain films. And, uh, you know, I think it's kind of endless, the kind of things we could do and we'll just see what, you know, hits and keeps us interested. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you know, before we get, cause we are going to do some, uh, kind of getting to know you questions and, uh, we got some fun stuff, uh, planned for this first episode, but is there anything in your past that kind of, um, you know, any pertinent background to, you know, your experience in movies that for this episode, kind of, you know, we, besides how you even started the blog and things like that? I mean, I, I, I don't know, outside of the fact that, um, I'm, I'm a video store kid and not, and not just in that I rented a lot. I worked in video stores for about about 10 years of my life from my junior year in high school through college, through graduating from college, moving to Los Angeles. My first job was a video store job here in town. So I've been sort of in and around them all the time and it's just that makes a lot of sense for both of us because we're both like cataloging and like, th- yeah, I worked oh, yeah. in uh, I worked in a couple of video stores in New Zealand and then here I was lucky enough to work at Facets in Chicago uh, for oh. about, only about a year or so, but it was, it's kind of like a mecca, you know, uh, in terms of cinema. And uh, I think that does, you know, there's something about working at video stores that besides the fact that you watch a shit ton of movies, uh, it really creates that cataloging brain and that, that sense of wanting to stand out. So you want to make your shelf with your picks and it feels special. And, you know, look, in the broader scope of the world, probably who gives a shit, right? But in when you're in it, that's your world, you know? And I don't know, video store culture is, is really, uh, you know, I know it's special. And it's not completely dead, but it's I, very specialty now. Yeah, I do miss it. I do miss it a lot. Obviously, both of us having worked in that environment, that's a whole other level of intimacy with it. But having kids like we do and, and them being introduced to movies, and I that has... Certainly, not having video stores has not impeded my introducing my daughter to and my son to movies. But it is a weird thing to start having to go through a digital platform. And I I mean, I don't have to, but I've just sort of chosen. I've realized that's the way that it's going to be with with my daughter in particular. She's only seven. Um, But yeah, I do. Like you said, I miss the the tactile nature of it and just walking around being in that literally in it. and also most of the way uh, most of the online sites are curated and it feels really random you know yeah. it, it feels like you could scroll for like you know an hour and we, you know we're not saying anything people don't feel at home they scroll all night don't watch anything and then watch something you know that's playing on tv live you know or whatever the feeling is and you know, another thing i think we're going to do is try to point to what's streaming at the moment and things that uh, we think are really cool yeah i think there's so many great streaming services and so many great movies available through those services again just maybe need a little spotlighting um but yeah and we were aware that people are now as much as both of us are physical media guys um, we'll certainly talk about Blu-rays and, you know, specialty labels and boutiques, but we'd love to make m- people more aware of these other streaming services and what you could be watching. Uh, like I know you were just watching Stalker on Moonstruck yeah. the other day. So. Yeah, we just I just did the production booth episode on it, and that's where I announced that we were doing this, which meant we had to do it. <laughs> part part of announcing something is just so you have to follow through. Uh, and the only other thing I'd probably, I mean, I've, I've made some like indie films, I've uh, you know, done done podcasts for the last couple of years, and I ran a, a little film spot in LA called Jump Cut Cafe. And even to those outside LA, it's probably this is going to be meaningless. But you know, the people here, it was exactly what you're talking about with your blog, where I created something because I thought there might be a place for it, and it was definitely out of passion. The idea and it was for it became more of a horror spot, a horror hangout. But that was not the intent. The intent was like a little independent film place. We had like you know 
copies of film comment there the best the best moment i early on it was like a couple of months in and uh, joe dante came because they were thinking about filming trailers from hell there and because i had kind of said hey you guys should start recording it here because then we could make it into a thing and i'll never forget he just walks through the door and he looks down and he sees my stack of film comment he goes mm, film comment fancy <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was great but unfortunately a couple seconds later a giant big rig went by and went and it was just like mm. it was like the end of that conversation because oh. because the sound and it's usually the quietest place so uh but you know we managed to run that for three years and it was a whirlwind in my life and I loved everything about it except for the fact that it was a business. And, you know, businesses in the modern world with uh, upkeep are almost impossible. I don't want to put anyone off. But for me, it was a, it, it really, you know, was lucky in a way to get out by the end. But I wish it was still here. You I know, I wish, I wish some, uh, some billionaire could have kept financing an idea like that. But the point is, I think uh, we're moving to maybe virtual communities, you know, and, and that can be possibly almost as powerful. Uh, you know, we also talk about the Brett Easton on this podcast sometimes for good or bad, because uh, he does have a long diatribe at the start. But I sometimes I find it fascinating. But I, w- I take opposition with one thing he said, and I'm not going to make this editorial, but he often will say, oh, well, look, it's the death of film. Movies are done. And he'll start talking about why. And he talks about TV. And, and I was thinking about a lot of stuff politically that's going on. And a lot of we're in a, you know, kind of culture wars and, and separation. And I started truly believing in my soul, and, and that's because I'm a deluded movie kid, that movies, in fact, have the answers to everything. And they've been warning us for years of all the terrible things that could happen. They also offer solutions because they're like reflections of what we desire, right? TV, on the other hand, which I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of the narrative of TVs right now, and they're amazing television right now. But the difference is it's serialized, the villains become the heroes, in a movie, there's closure. Often there's the end of something and, and some, some good, whether whatever kind of movie you watch, often kind of triumphs. Uh, TVs keep us at home. They keep us separated from people, groups of people. Movies bring us together. They put us in a dark room and they make us collectively be together and a collective unconscious. And I was thinking about this in the car the other day, just when things to me, you know, just seem so bleak around you. And you're like, I really believe that uh, the separation, uh, I don't believe movies are dead in any way. And we're going to, part of doing the show will be us fighting for the love of movies, to, to keep movies relevant as much as we can and everyone else can who, who does things like this. But I definitely think that there is something beautiful in the act of going to movies still and, and supporting it in cinema versus being, you know, ultimately separated and alone with television as much as I love it. I think there's a big difference. And I think the rise of TV has a direct relation to, you know, just the way we experience the world. You know, so maybe movies might be done in in terms of being the most culturally relevant art form, but they are not done, and these things you know cycle around. So, you know, we'll do our part. <laughs> this, yeah. this is like my political statement for I, episode I one. I believe everything you just said. So <laughs> hold I'm me to it, just I'm in case I ever go, man, TV's better than. Movie. <laughs> I'll, I'll make. Uh, I think we should only have two rules on the show. Uh, one, unless it's Twin Peaks, we won't talk about TV. <laughs> I'm wearing yes. a Twin Peaks shirt right yes, now. Yes, yes. Um, and two, this is something you said a minute ago, and I, this is the only rule I, I want to, because I hate rules. Uh, but you, you mentioned that we are going to occasionally review or discuss a new movie. So something I said early on to you was, if we ever discuss a new movie, the only rule I want to have is that we have to then pair it with a film we think it would be great on a double feature with and something from the past that way if we're talking about something new we get to highlight something old and i think that um, relationship could just be you know it's a fun challenge anytime we have a new film we want to talk about yeah it's one of my favorite things to do is to see a new movie and think about i mean i'm just one of those people that i'm sure a lot of people are sort of like 
armchair programmers, you know, just kind of like, oh, wouldn't it be great if, and then, you know, you, you, when you have kids, they, you, they have to be subjected to your programming. So anyway, uh, I always think about new movies in that context. And I, I think it's great if we can get other people to do the same, if they're not already doing that. Yeah. Cause it's just a way to discover more stuff. And I, and I love, look in LA, if you're ever visiting LA, in my opinion, we have the greatest cinema in the world right now, and I and I mean that of having been to a lot of different cinemas in the world. Uh, the New Beverly Cinema, owned by Quentin Tarantino, but um, you know, uh, one of the people we know, Phil Blankenship, is one you know occasionally gets to program there, and he's been doing Heavy Midnights for a long time. And the double features they play are, it's just endlessly fascinating. You know, you'll never run out of movies, and they're still showing them on thirty-five millimeter, which is definitely. That is one thing that is dying, sadly. Yeah. And there's no turning back. But uh, anyway, so that's that's our diatribe. I thought it would be two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Uh, I'll, I'm going to lead off and ask you the first question. Are okay. you ready? Yeah. So this is going to be it. So this is our getting to know each other for episode one. So if you start watch, listening to this thing at uh, 10, dial it back to one uh, so you'll understand. What is your earliest movie memory? Okay. I'm going to start what might be a slight... sort of tradition on the show which is i have two Mm -hmm. (laughs) i have a feeling you would have alternate dimensions going on here um they tie together in in a way um they both have to do with 16 millimeter films and not watching in a theater um the first memory that i have and they're two they're really close together which is the other reason i i talk about both of them first one i think is one of my earliest birthdays that i can remember my mom checked out a 16 millimeter projector from the local library and she got some Spider-Man cartoons, oh, cool. the 60s Spider-Man. Uh, and then she got a movie called The Mouse That Roared. Hmm. And I don't know if you're... Okay. Know. I've not seen this since, but it is a Peter Sellers movie from the 60s, if I recall. And it's basically about a, uh, a small kingdom that wants to declare war in the United States only to surrender immediately so that they can get some financial help from the States. So they basically send somebody to the States to try and find someone to surrender to. And through this weird happenstance, they end up uh, with a truck with a, a nuclear device and they end up bringing it back to the country. Then suddenly they are a nuclear, like a, a superpower. Yeah. And it just becomes this whole ridiculous farce. It sounds and, kind of topical right now. <laughs> it is. It's it oddly dangerous. Oddly topical. And yeah. Peter Seller plays multiple roles, yeah. you know, in his strange love kind of way. Um, a very odd choice for my mom for a young kid's birthday party. But uh, I remember just being fascinated by, you know, having it up on the screen. And so that was one. Uh, and the other thing that I always remember is at my grade school, I think first, second, and third grade, I want to say, on the last day of school, they had a print of uh, Freaky Friday, the Disney movie. And they would run it on the last day of school every year. And so I had this really great association with that movie, not only because... I immediately had a crush on Jodie Foster from the minute I saw her in that movie, um, but also because they were always playing it on the last day of school. So it was just this amazing, like, oh, this is a really fun thing to do, and it's on the last day of school. It's almost summer. So I think that started this whole... It's pairing those feelings together for you. Yeah, and it really, I think it launched something in me. And it also, we would later, when we started going to the video store, our grocery store slash video store had like all those Disney live action movies, including Freaky Friday, and we just went through every single one. So I've seen all that oh, stuff. that's cool. Anyway, so that was sort of my, my beginnings. Yeah, I mean, I think this is always an interesting question because, you know, the, re- the reality is it's probably not our first movie. Like, who knows what we saw that we can't remember. Yeah. But uh, What's yours? I, you know, I have a really clear one because, you know, I was born in uh, America, but I moved, you know, when I was, I don't know, six to New Zealand. Um, 
but I have a memory of being, and I think it might be in Connecticut somewhere. I wish I could find out where this place was, but we went to a place that served fried chicken and the lights are all out. I just remember me and my mom and the lights are out and on the wall, they uh, projected Charlie Chaplin shorts. Oh, wow. And I remember it so well. Like I, the pairing of almost like Pavlov's dogs, the smell of fried chicken mixed with like cinema, whatever cinema was to me, it was just you know like watching this clown, but more or less. And they're probably like his shorts, I imagine, because I don't think they're features. But the memories, I, I had these like flickering memories, and you never, you know, I always question, especially having done a lot of uh, horror podcasts, I'm always questioning in my mind, like, oh, where did the start? But that memory is just, it's solid, like it's a solid memory. God knows where it was or what it was, and I'm, I'm sure my mom would never remember the place, you know. I think of Aster once. And the other th- other memory I have is being, you know, four or five, whatever the age was, with a, a VHS tape or beta tape, whatever it was, of Star Wars. And what, literally watching it, I have a memory of just sitting, standing right next to the screen at my house and watching it every day. Like, in my mind, it was every day for a year, just watching that one movie. And I don't remember any other media from that time period. I just remember Star Wars, you know. And, and I guess that's, you know, become being a Star Wars kid. And then I kind of forget about it for a, year, a few years. And then when Star Wars came back, it all comes flooding back, you know. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely a big one for me, too. I remember my dad taking me to some kind of revival show. It must have been in the early 80s. Um, maybe it was just before Jedi came out. I, it, it was definitely not, you know, late 70s. I was I was older, and I felt, like, conscious enough to be excited about it but I felt like I'd seen it, but I wish I could remember that stuff. I just can't anymore. Jedi was definitely the first one I saw in a theater yeah. as a kid. I, de- I remember being really excited about that, and and I specifically remember a moment where, you know, it was Revenge of the Jedi, and then I remember my mom, this is a really specific one, my mom was curling her hair or something, and I went in to tell her, I'm like, Mom, they changed the name of the movie. It's Return of the Jedi. <laughs> and she just could not give a shit less. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the moments where I was suddenly like, oh my God, I can say something that my my mom does not give a shit about at all. Yeah. And that was the thing where I'm like, oh, wow, I have to be a little more conscious of people caring about what I'm talking about. That's pretty funny. Um, well, that leads into our, our second film. You know, this kind of open, uh, you know, first, first favorite film that you kind of remember being a favorite film or slash as well director like just when you started noticing directors okay so like the first one when i was like i decide i'm deciding this is my favorite film yeah okay I, I looked at this question a little differently but i have an answer for this it could be either way yeah, yeah I think no i have an answer for this um i think the terminator is probably oh. because that was the first movie i ever owned in any format um i remember going to a small mom and pop video shop in my local small town and they had terminator on vhs for like 15 bucks and i'm like you know what i'm doing it i'm buying it i like this movie enough that i want to own it and this is going to be my first movie i wish i still had that tape i don't but um and as far as directors i don't know that i was aware of them until a little later i think that was more when i was in college yeah yeah definitely directors are like i mean even realizing that movies are made i remember that moment where you're like oh, there's a guy or a girl or somebody. There's a team of people who constructed this. But like when you're young, that's kind of part of that. I guess why the magic of movies when you're young is you're, you're not conscious at all about construction. You are just in a world. And then it's a lot later when you become kind of obsessed and suddenly you'll see something. And I, I, I know for me it was, um, I'll do this backwards, but in terms of director, it, uh, actually Roman Polanski was the first uh, filmmaker. Uh, now he's a hotbed of controversy, of course, but at the time when I was a kid, I just uh, had seen a couple of his movies, but didn't really think about him as him. him. And then I went to a screening of um, the Polish school, which is Wodge. Um, all their short films and it was seeing student made short films and particularly his 
that made me go, whoa, these are A, incredible, but B, I kind of see that somebody was making these, and I can see the edges to them, the phrase, but in a way that, this by this point, I'm probably like 15, you know, but that made me go, oh, I can make movies. It's something I could actually do with my hands. Uh, when you see an, an epic Hollywood film, you never think you can make that. It's almost intimidating. So in, in the background, so Plants Game, I became really interested and read my first biographies and books on them and stuff uh, early on. And, you know, Kubrick, there's a couple of it. But, but I think with Polanski, it wasn't, you know, obviously it wasn't his personal life that interests me. That, that unfortunately is something that will always, you know, loom over his work now. Uh, but it's the style in which he saw the world and the way he always skewed things like I, I remember, there's a great analogy in *Rosemary Baby* where she uh, sits around the court, Rosemary, uh, the the woman next door, and she's sitting uh, on the phone. And I remember in one a documentary about cinematography, they kind of said well, they they put them off to the side, so you'd have to the whole audience would have to like yeah crane their head to see around the corner. And even though that's just one analogy of it, I think that kind of sums them up because he came from a really dark background and a lot of loss, a lot of paranoia. Uh, and I think I, that coming into those movies, and I, as a young person, I, I could feel that without knowing any of the history or biography of the guy. I could see something in the cinema, you know. Um, but for me, my fir- the first film uh, it was it is, is The Shining. Ah. And it's not the first movie I saw, but it's the first one. I think I was nine and it was on TV. Oh, and I was in a church choir. And so were all my friends because <laughs> we were forced to by our parents because I had a stepfather who was a minister. And I... I was home that night and I watched The Shining on TV. No one's watching us at all. No one even pays attention to us kids in New Zealand. And I remember going and and my friends turned out they were all watching it in their houses. And I remember the next day going and seeing them and going, oh my God, that was the greatest thing I've ever seen. And they uniformly said, oh, it was terrible. None of them liked it at the time. One of my best friends, Alex, who may or may not listen to this, uh, it's his favorite movie of all time now, but at the time. He said it was boring and they didn't understand and didn't like it. I'll never forget that I was, I, I was a true believer from day one. It it just knocked me on my ass. And the things and also this was with commercial breaks and everything because it was on TV. I was just like on the edge of my seat and I'll never forget the Red Rum reveal was probably the biggest surprise I've had to this day in my life. <laughs> you know, like and you think about how silly that is now. <laughs> it's a reveal. It's just a you know a reflection of a word. But in that moment in my life, I was like, oh my god. I think I I think it got me too. It's funny yeah. because now you, I pride myself. Well, not pride myself, but it's one of those things where you see enough movies and you can always see stuff coming. You know, yeah. you can see a movie leaning into certain things. But yeah, I think it got me too in that same way. I I'm trying to remember. I, I saw it relatively young, not that young, but there's something about it's weird about movies like that, Kubrick films in particular, the things that I remember and that really stood out, like. I remember that bathroom scene oh, yeah. and the red of that bathroom and just going, I think it was when I was early enough that I was still not quite aware of director control and production design and things like that. And I was just like, wow, what is this room? I want to go in that room. Even if, even if it's freaky, there's something about that. Yeah, the pull of movies before you understand movies is something. I mean, I, I wish you could be conscious to like write a book about it at the time, but you're just not. You're just in these movies. So it's, it, and that is pure cinema, like where you don't know what you're entering. You're a kid or however old you are, and you're in this world and you're in this hotel and terrible things are happening. I mean, I, I wish I could experience The Shining again like that to know what that felt like now. But, you know, I just saw it again. Uh, you know, just a few weeks ago, and I saw—I I grew up on the international print, which is uh, the shorter version of the film by by almost twenty minutes. Um, 
And I always preferred that version because it is a little more on, in a way, non-narrative. Like it has a little less exposition. Which one is on the Blu-ray? I think you uh, talked about this. I think on the Blu-ray here, it's the American, but on Netflix streaming for some weird reason in America, they're streaming the international version, oh, which wow. is very odd. I think I've only ever seen the American. I but the other version just grounds it a little more and I've grown to like that version more now because it kind of makes it more real. But there's something about the weirdness. Uh, but, it, you know, it's, 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 it still holds up, man. Like, watching it again hasn't aged it's so easily. You know, I'll talk about it later when we talk about our, you know, some of our favorite movies. But um, it's, I, it's Just a, nice a real brief aside, my wife and I have been noticing a lot lately, and maybe it's just because we're looking for it, but we keep seeing people seemingly aping the opening shot or some semblance of, the like, the winding road, the over the, the yeah. high angle. Like, we, we've seen it. Now I can't even tell you like um which movies but i feel like movies and tv shows lately we just keep seeing it and i'm like maybe i'm imagining this but it could be just a shift in technology using drones now it's could so be. easy could to get totally that be shot that. yeah you know but at the time that was you know but how many directors have seen that movie and and how many can't help but want to imitate that's just yeah. my thought i could could be not there at all but anyway I, i'm like completely sure that you're right on that um, this one, it doesn't even need to be a long one. And this, I can't remember if I told you this, but this was, I thought it'd be funny to know because we might change as we do the show cinematic, cinematic weak spot. Okay. Um, like any, any period of cinema where you realize, you know what? I don't know shit about that. Or I didn't, I've purposely avoided it. I mean, if, if I'm being honest, it, a lot of it has to do with foreign films and I like foreign films and I've seen a good number of them. Uh, a lot more in the classical sort of older stuff, but across the board, new foreign films, I know I'm lacking. It's one of those things that because of sort of the way that I watch movies now because of my kids and whatever, um, my wife who's open to foreign films, but I think she's like me in that, like, I have to get into the right mode to do it. And once I'm in the mode, then I can go and, but I, I haven't been in the mode recently and I don't know, it's not about not wanting to read subtitles. I'm fully able to do that but so so the new foreign films but also um you know things like italian neorealism if we're talking about more classic yeah. yeah i mean i've seen a handful but there's a lot that i need to see um i think i since my kid was born i've veered slightly from um s- sort of tragic s- super sad cinema which is what you always hear about italian neorealism yeah. but I, I gotta be honest i saw the bicycle thief for the first time um last year Finally, and I was just like, "Well, God, why the hell did I wait so yeah, long?" Yeah, it is. It is a pretty amazing movie when you finally catch it. It's one of those movies you always hear is great, and then you find seeing it go. Oh, yeah, it's it's just a beautiful, so simple, heartfelt. so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Well, I, th- I mean, I don't think that's that weird because I think with foreign films, I obviously living in New Zealand, we see probably a little bit more foreign cinema. It's a little more normalized, I guess, there than America. But I would say a big part of it's it's if you're not seeing it in a cinema where you're a captive audience. You know, like it, it does feel like a bit more of a chore, the idea of putting on a foreign film at home, like when there's so many other options, like you're talking about with streaming. Whereas if you're in a movie theater, you're going to, you've got a rapt attention. And, yeah. Uh, so, but for me, it's like, you know what? And there's lots of, there's obviously lots of dark spots, but specifically I've always known uh, 30s and 40s musicals, like almost nothing. Like I've seen a couple and I know Busby Berkeley and things like that, but I have purposely just almost stayed away from that. And also I'd say in general, 30, 40s movies. I feel like my, my, I'm really interested in like things from the 20 or the birth of cinema and then 50s, 60s, 70s. But for whatever reason, and it could be because of that awkward transition to sound to, to an extent, even though there's gems in there, it might be that I, I preferred the more visual 
uh, language that kind of developed later. But like, I've seen a lot of fifties gangster films and things like that. But before that, I feel like I would have to like look at what I've really seen, and that's that's the decades where I'd definitely be the weakest. So I have two questions. So is it because you that's not your bag, or is it just because you? You know what? It, it's kind of like probably how you're saying with foreign films, because in the sense is, if I sit down, like, let me put, I can give you an analogy. Uh, I, you know, I also teach film, and I had students telling me for about four months to watch Sing Street. But one of them had said it was a musical, and I avoided it for all four months, and I kept avoiding it, and then I thought, oh, I got to watch it finally. I sat down, and I was like, ah, oh, it's so great. Yeah, and it's, and not, it a feel so it's not a musical. It's not a musical in the sense of, I mean, it is in that it's very music-heavy, Yeah, but it's definitely one of those movies that isn't really... It's yeah, a great movie. it's it's really a great. Movie. It's one definitely one of the ones I, I most enjoyed this year, and, and I really like La La Land seeing in the theater too. So it's the kind of thing where I'm not interested. I think it's a, a thing about realism. Maybe I'm not interested to see a musical, but when I'm sitting in there, it takes me, you know, where it needs to take me. And so I think it's more of a conscious of avoiding it. But if I somehow fall into it, <laughs> that's so funny. Two two things, uh, more things. Um, I was showing my daughter La La Land. She was having a lot. She loves fantasy films and animation, all these things. But she was having a lot of trouble when they would just suddenly start singing, you know. Uh-huh. And they, there's a point where they, um, they, the girls go from their apartment out into the street and sing. And she was just like, "Oh my god, they're gonna get hit by a car!" I'm like, "No, you don't understand. This is it's it's like a dream." And she just and then there's a scene where there's people dancing and diving in the pool, and she just couldn't wrap her head around it and I'm like wow maybe there's just something about that that you really have to get used to that I've gotten used to I mean obviously you part of a language yeah yeah I don't know but my other question is so Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers Uh what have you seen I've seen like two or three and they were in film classes when I was like a freshman in college and I remember enjoying them thinking the chemistry was great you know Singing the Rain is a movie I I have seen a lot and love it's a great movie so yeah I don't know what it would be I think you know I think I saw um 42nd Street was that there was a filmed version wasn't there yeah yeah and I remember seeing that like with a grandma once and like thinking oh it looked cool but I was like I, I wasn't I think you know at heart I'm a, a definitely a cinema aesthetics guy like I like yeah. the aesthetics of movies and they have like you know incredible set pieces but I guess in a way for the most part it's more like watching spectacle like theater to an extent like they're doing a stage show yeah not all the time. I like Umbrellas of Sherberg, which I watched a lot later, which is, you know. Which I still haven't seen, honestly. And it's, and it's really just La La Land. I mean, a, yeah. l- a slightly more depressing version, but very, very similar. Um, and it's brilliant. You know, it's it's just like one of those movies you walk out and how the music's amazing and the singing's kind of depressing. And they, they kind of sing in a way that's so offhand. But uh, All right. Well, I'm, I'm curious because Top Hat and Swing Time are two of my favorite movies. Um, and I'm not a big musical person. So... At some point during the show, I want to hear what you think of those because we will are, do that. Those are big, and we'll watch them here. Like we'll put them on a screen. And, nice. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm all for it. And if anything like that plays at a theater and you just see it, tell me because that's that's the way I need to see something oh, yeah. like that. Because it's you know it isn't conscious really. You know, no, just, no, no, no. It's and it's yeah. not one of the things, but it's just one of those things where I want to see how you feel about it. And you may be like, meh, it was okay. But for me, Fred Astaire is one of those. Inc- what he's like pure cinema for me yeah. as far as like the long shot of him dancing it, no special effects all him I mean there's just something about that to me again not a big musical fan but that's something I can watch just about any day of the week I will say Gene Kelly as a presence as someone who I just always loved growing up he looks a lot like my grandfather and I don't know if that's part of it so I'd always anytime I saw him in something I'd be taken with his presence just as a screen's presence but yeah I gotta, I gotta watch this I like Gene Kelly a lot too but I will say that I think Astaire has got more grace and is more relaxed, whereas 
for me, Gene Kelly is like he looks like he's working a little harder, and yeah. and he's amazing, incredibly athletic. But Fred is just so relaxed, so just graceful and just flowing. Anyway, don't want to get too. No, I, that's, hey, that's why we're here. Right. And, and more than more than wanting to give uh, listeners new movies, we need to give each other <laughs> uh, new ideas. Um, so we're one thing that I know you got you do a lot on your site. You know, is is pimping uh, films that have just been released or things you've just bought or you know, what's coming up. And I, and I think it's a great resource. So I had to ask, you know, what was the last Blu-ray slash DVD that you purchased? Um, I got to be upfront and say that I do, I have, the site has been very good to me in that I've been able to, I think, con a lot of uh, <laughs> boutique labels to sending me stuff so I don't buy as much as yeah. I, did, I used to. But the last one I purchased uh, as of right now, I think, and I, I could be wrong, uh, is the His Girl Friday Criterion, um, oh, nice. which you know, one of my favorites, one of the early like film school movies that I saw that kind of just took the top of my head off and kind of made me go, whoa, old movies can be funny and just so fast. So fast the you dialogue know? is just moves. Yeah. So that's a big one for me. What's the last one for you? Um, yeah. So I, I don't get as many, I, I want to, and hopefully I'll start, I'll just start conning all those sites because <laughs> I'd love to. I, I end up buying more over the last couple of years, definitely more horror titles because of something about collecting those that I, I, I prefer, but also criterion and things, of course. Uh, the last one I got, I had to get, it was a code red film that a friend of mine had shown me a couple of years ago. Absolutely loved it. Uh, but it's out of print. So I went on eBay <laughs> and got it. Uh, and that's, uh, rituals. Oh. which is the Hal Holbrook. Uh, it's basically Deliverance, but done in Canada with Hal Holbrook and a bunch of doctors. I think it was on my um, uh, list for you a couple years ago. Yeah. And that movie has really lingered in my brain. It's something I wanted to see again, but it's it's a real bummer. that, that I don't really, Code Red's one of those models I don't fully understand what they do. I'm always excited about when they're putting stuff out, but I can never understand, like, why is that no longer available? Or why is Messiah of Evil on Blu-ray today and then tomorrow it's not and then the next day it is? So yeah. it's one of those sites that I never know. Uh, but the other thing, I, it, for, that was a DVD, and I definitely bought uh, Argento's Tenebrae on Blu-ray and not to see the movie again, which I'd seen quite a lot lately, but it's got a documentary about the rise of the Giallo film. And I still haven't watched it, but I oh, bought nice. it for that reason because I'm kind of dying. And it's one of those movements that... I've seen a lot of Giallo films, but I have no idea, like, the historical context, where it came from, why it was, like, you know, the fashion industry and the style and the J&B. So uh, we'll talk about it once I see it on the show. It's, yeah, and I'll watch it, too. I, I bought that, and I have not opened it yet. Yeah, and Tenebrae's a great, a great movie. Anyway. One of his best. Um, and, you know, that leads straight into, like, and I think this is something that could change by the day with both of us, but... Of all the companies, like we're living in this just ridiculous, we can we can complain about no more video stores all we want, but we're in this uh, rich, embarrassment of riches when it comes to amazing re-releases on Blu-ray with just loaded to the gills extras of some of these companies, Arrow, Arrow Films, Screen Factory, Shout Factory, Criterion, I mean, it's, it goes on and on, but... For some reason, because we're collectors, uh, there's that fetishistic thing that sometimes there's one company that you look forward to more than another. And for whatever reason, do you have a company that when you hear something new is going to come, you're just you're ready to go? I, I think it does change a lot, and I I I like a lot of those labels. I'm a big supporter. I mean, that's a lot of what I do on Twitter all day is like, hey, this just got announced, and hey, here's what came out this week, um, highlighting different labels. But I think for me, the one, I mean, Criterion's always very interesting and exciting, but Twilight Time is really, um, they just the way, that the stuff that they curate, I mean, although not every single one is something I want to own, they've hit 
especially in the last couple of years, some of my all-time favorite movies, and a lot of stuff I actually discovered through the Perry cult books, things like Pretty Poison. Yeah, Pretty Poison, when I saw that was coming out, it was instantly one of the ones I was most excited about as well. Um, that's just one of those movies that I feel like is just this close to being a movie that if, because so many people know Psycho and they know Anthony Perkins, I feel like it's just a slight step to the right for them to watch this movie and just be blown away by it, you know, because it's just so good. Well, I mean, I hope one day they put out uh, Frank Frank Perry, who's one of my favorite directors. Play it as it lays. Play it as it lays because it's the same two actors. Uh, and it's, you know, a few years later and you really see a difference in both. It's a really serious, dark movie. Uh, Perkins is a suicidal producer. Tuesday Weld's a really unhappy actress. Uh, and it's, it's almost like the weird invert. In fact, I can't really think of a greater double feature than those two movies because yeah. it's just almost like um, Hollywood. It's almost like the story of movies and what they are because uh, one is full of joy and weird pathos and madness and beauty and romance and all those kind of things, but still dark. Yeah. And then the other film's just dark and it's all the broken shells that are <laughs> left yeah. after all. Uh, but those, I play it as a laser. like, I mean, I've only ever seen a, a copied version that was in a video store, probably from the T- Turner Classics or something. I've never seen a good version of that. So that would be great. I mean, all of Frank Perry's films, and if you've never heard of them, you might've heard of The Swimmer, which is, you know, one of my all time favorite movies, but, um, she has a great grindhouse releasing, blue. grindhouse releasing, which brings me to my choice. Oh, there we go. It's Let's actually get... surprisingly grindhouse releasing. And it's, it, and I think it might be, I, I think I'm right there with you with twilight time. I think twilight time maybe trumps even criterion things because it's even more eclectic what they pull out. And it's, it feels kind of almost more important because they're doing these sub licenses and can only release so many of them that you're like, if I don't have that and that falls out of domain and is never released again, that's it. I think that, and that does tend to piss people off. And I get that collectors that feel like this obligation and how it makes them upset. But yeah, there's something about that. The way that Nick Redman himself and Julie Kurgo, they have an ongoing commentaries and that's something criterion doesn't have is they use some of the same people, but Nick and Julie and sometimes Lem Dobbs, the screenwriter, are the ones that inhabit the Twilight Time commentaries. And I swear to you, it's like taking a class or like visiting some old friends, hearing them talk again every time. There's a continuity. And I wrote to Julie about it on Facebook at one point, And she's like, yeah, that was Nick's design. That was always a mm. plan. And I, I love that. I think it's great. And so that, that that gives that sense of community that we've been talking about. But, but well, Grindhouse. Uh, well, sorry. no, I mean, it's really similar, actually, because I think this is what we're talking about. We're talking about, like, it's like, it's like a podcast. It's like whatever. It's curated, and it's being designed. So with uh, Grindhouse, uh, you know, um, uh, Bob Murawski, who's uh, you know most famous for being Sam Raimi's editor on uh, you know a whole bunch of uh, great movies, but also did like Hurt Locker. You know he was uh, paired up at a certain point with uh, Sage Stallone, Sylvester Stallone's son, who's you know one of the few people in my life I wish I'd met. I love his. He made a film called Vic, which I just am totally in love with. A short film, and you know he passed away about it. I think it was right when I moved to L.A. Um, a few years ago, and um, they had started this company, and uh, you know they had the resources to chase things like the rights to the B. Beyond and uh, I mean, just you know, all sorts of uh, you know, cat in the brain, and I drink your blood. Some, pieces. some, yeah, pieces, some schlock, some masterpieces. Um, but whatever it was, they were all treated completely equally the way they released it. And the extras, uh, their extras on Cannibal Holocaust, you know, a movie that she, you know is, is is a tough movie. It's disgusting. You might only watch it once in your life and then want to burn it in a fire pit. <laughs> But my God, there's some stories on those extras that I think are some of the best stories I've ever heard in my life about movies where my jaws just dropped. And it's not even that they're shot well. It's just the camera. I think one of the jokes was that John Gulliger was on the camera. And I think Bob Murawski said at one point you notice a slightly dip. He's like, yeah, John fell asleep while he was filming the interview. 
And it, like, but you see the love in their releases, and they're definitely. I get the vibe that there might not be a whole lot more coming because oh. I think probably because of the you know he was in a relationship, you know, uh, produ- putting out these movies with Sage, and Sage isn't there now, and you know he's a working editor. But what he did, and, and I'm sure will come up in later episodes, is two of my favorite, you know, discoveries of the last like decade of my life were his two Duke Mitchell films. Um, who was like a Sinatra-like uh, nightclub singer who uh, just decided to sell up his 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 nightclub and his act. He was also he had acted one time in a Jerry Lewis uh, Dean Martin type movie called uh, Bella Lugosi Meets the Brooklyn Gorilla, which they were then uh, told to stop their act because it was too close to Dean Martin and Lewis, so they were actually banned from being an act in Hollywood anymore. So kind of ended that side of his career. But he you know he sold up everything and he made these these two gangster pictures uh, while he made uh, Massacre Mafia style, which is just, it's so, um, it's so un-PC. It's not politically correct, but it's the way uh, he said Sicilians, you know, and gangsters really talked. And he was so offended, apparently, when he saw Godfather that he's like, ah, fuck that movie. I'm going to show you how it's really done. And he made this movie. And then, you know, years later, uh, you know, recently, only a few years ago, you know, did Bob discover the elements that he had made another movie but it wasn't finished and so you know duke mitchell had passed and his son they find they find these elements and morowski spends a few years re-editing gone with the pope and when i saw that movie i'd heard the stories and i had heard screenings and i was really excited i remember when i saw that movie i was like this is the best movie i've seen last decade and i cannot believe it's only out because there was a guy who's you know academy award-winning editor who, who took the time no money to just edit this on his own, try to make sense of it, try to try to you know keep the integrity of this director who's not here anymore, his vision, and then puts it out and probably fucking improved the movie, you know, from what probably it would have been, and it's and it's like it's like it's as close as I've seen in the last like decade to like oh that's a magical film, and so when they put those out, I feel like, and then recently they put out the swimmer, and he put out a couple things that I was like whoa because you're getting used to Grindhouse releasing being you know a place for horror big like gun down big gun down was yeah that was a great film um and there's something else it, I, he told us behind the scenes how he got these like movies I think they're all Sony movies um he got three of them that released that were not like his other stuff and it was something to do with you know back end and Spider Man and he <laughs> He did it. It was one of those interesting wow. stories where you're like, oh, okay. That was uh, a great episode of Killer POV, by the way. Yeah, like, yeah. One of my favorite episodes of the show. Yeah, so um, to tie into a couple of shows, and, and uh, not to do be too self promoting but just because you might be interested in what um, Brian was just talking about, Nick Redman has, uh, about Twilight Time, had been on a couple episodes where it was really good to clarify what they do and why they do it. Um, and I, it was that was an interesting episode, and Bob Murawski, who I'm talking about now, did, it is my favorite episode, actually, of um, Killer POV. Because his stories are incredible, you know. So good. Um, and he's just, you know, and he's also open to talk about the stuff. And, and again, it's about people who just love movies so much that he would spend years of his life doing something for no reward at all, except that the movie exists. That's why, you know, exhibitors and conservationists and stuff, they, they're all champions of movies, you know, and, and podcasters. Anyone who's, who keeps that in the, the mind of people to keep watching things, it's, it's all pretty great. So if something about there, because they don't put out a lot of things, um, I'm always really excited about what they put out. Um, and you know, that's, it's, it's a, it's a nice feeling. Yeah. I, I am a hundred percent on board with you with this. And I do feel like one phrase that gets bandied about quite a bit and to a degree, I get it. And to a degree, I agree with all these comparisons. People will say, Oh, such and such is the criterion of horror. Right, Scream yeah. factory is arrow is, I don't think any of those guys quite does for me what Grindhouse does. Um, I'm, and the, I, I don't get me wrong, I love Scream Factory's collector's editions. I think they do a fantastic job. And, and Arrow has really stepped up their game to the point where, I mean, 
I, I need to buy Creepshow 2. I need to buy yeah. movies that I didn't think I need to because they're so good. But Grindhouse for me is really the closest thing to a criterion for genre. Uh, just as far as the care, uh, it's so great. I have to, and I think Twilight Time to an extent as well. I wonder if it's, I have to guess because I can't speculate what he makes off it, but feels like he's not doing it for money. So if you're not doing something for the business, but you're doing it anyway, and I can't say he might, that might help him, but I'm guessing he does okay as an editor. I think he's doing that and putting all that love in because it matters to him. And I think with Screen Factory, even if they love all the titles, you know, there's still a wing of a corporate business that has to keep putting these things out. So, so it's, you know, even though they put all that love in, I do think there's a, and it's a, it's definitely a boutique, right? Yeah. What he's doing. So I, I agree with you, but I do think it's coming from that very personalized spot, you know? Yeah. And, 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 you know, look, Screen Factory is just crushed it and it's, and it's a crazy market. Now the arrows in the same market with Screen Factory, I imagine it's it's tough on all of them. Oh yeah, uh, it's good for us though. It's I mean, good for us, you know. <laughs> we get to enjoy all the good movies. And uh, hey, now Vestron, uh, the Vestron releases are coming out too, which are super fun. Oh man, um, I and, was so excited to get Parents on Blu-ray. Never thought that would. Happen. Oh yeah, I remember. I haven't seen that since VHS. I got I got to rewatch. It's it. got a commentary with Bob Balaban as producer, and it's really, really oh cool, really interesting. It's out already. Yeah. Okay. Right, wait. Yeah, it just came out this week. I think. Okay. Well, we don't want to date the show, but. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just recently. Just come recently, out. yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we had Jackie Kong recently on for Blood Diner, so it was fun to you know talk to people from that time period because it is weird how these movies kind of got lost. A lot of the Western ones have been particularly hard to get in the last few years, I think. Um, so we're a couple more, a couple more quick questions. Let's uh, one, you know, some of these things will come up over time, but I wanted to know if you had a favorite film book. It's, it's as somebody who read a lot of film back books, especially when I was first getting into movies. You know, it's it's a kind of a big question, but wondered if besides the obvious, unless it is the obvious. Well, it, it kind of is the obvious. Well, two things. One, I used to, one of my first forays into podcasting was a show called The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. I started as a listener, then I would be an occasional guest. Um, this is now, oh gosh, I mean, this is eight years ago, a long time ago. Um, but then I got them to let me start doing interviews. I would just do phone interviews with people, and I ended up getting you know Joe Dante and. Um, a lot of the trailers from Hell guys, actually, uh, Alan Arkish. And one of my questions for them at the end was always, what's your favorite film book? Um, and it was fascinating to hear what they would say. But for me, um, the folks at home can't see it, but I have a tattoo of uh, the cover of Danny Perry's Guide for the Film Fanatic on my shoulder. And I love the cult movies books. But for me, Guide for the Film Fanatic is my favorite book of all time because uh, it is an encapsulation of all the cult movies books and more. And it has um, like something like 1,600 mini essays or something, and then it has like a, a ridiculous checklist in the back. It's it's designed to turn you into a, a film fanatic, really, yeah. in that you just want to go through and check everything off. And I've had that book since I was in college, and I still I've been savoring it. I I will I'm aware of what's in it, and sometimes I'll dig it out and go and find something that I've been meaning to see for like, I think I just bought like daughters of darkness on Blu-ray right. and I'm like, Oh, I've been meaning to see this. That was in the cult movies books too. But, um, so that's, that's definitely my favorite one. And one that I would recommend any budding cinephile. Pick Dude, up. I don't have it. Oh boy. And I've read, you know, uh, all three of the cult movies book and, uh, the cult stars. What's that one called? The cult movie stars. Cult movie stars is one I, I got really early. That's I remember that one. Yeah. That one just, uh, those descriptions of, of certain people are just hilarious. We talked about maybe bringing that book on the show at some point, just yeah. going through, a couple actors, because man, that's such a great way to 
sort of fine films is to look at these actors and oh Sid Haig did what and just going down the list oh, yeah. and, you know and and because you 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 know especially modern audiences you tend to know them for like people now think of Sid Haig they're going to think of Rob Zombie movies and that the image of an older guy and and the funniest thing about Sid Haig is he seems really beefy and big and then you see the Jack Hill movies and he's this little skinny you know uh you know big sideburns big beard you know almost seems like a crazy hippie my my, my wife met him at a Whole Foods oh that's awesome and he was super nice I, I, yeah I I, lo- I think he's one of the coolest guys I've met, and you know, this kind of, yeah, super stuff. Um, you know, a book I, I, I like. Look, I, I don't even think like you. It's I almost can't answer it, even though I think cult movies was one of the most influential, uh, or even Leonard Moulton's. You know, one of his film guides one big, year. Big for me too. But as I was getting a little more, you know, more like twenty one, getting into like lots of cinema, there was a book that really stood out. Um, uh, and people, especially if you're looking for some really interesting movies, you w- probably haven't heard of. It's called uh, Film as Subversive Art. By oh. Amos Vogel, who I don't know if I know this. he ran Cinema Sixteen in New York, and he, you know, he's uh, just a big film, uh, not so much a theorist as somebody who showed a lot of movies, and it is uh, especially the ultimate gateway into Eastern European films. And basically, it look it's looking at all the movies that were using film, especially in the seventies, mostly uh, to kind of um, like Daisies or uh, you know or um, Cremator or all these movies, uh, Dusan Makovic movies, movies that were like made by people to kind of fuck with the system almost like um the way surrealists used art and there are so many uh, stills and movies mentioned that i hadn't heard of yet and i and that, that was at a point where i'd seen a lot of movies so that it just like it's like a watershed book and it's entertaining and sexual a lot of sex stuff a lot of uh, a lot of the most like craziest cinema so i'd and there's there's a, like a new version of it out in a, probably on amazon or whatever but it's a really great book for even just somebody who wants to go through and like find some new movies uh but at the time it it, it kind of connected with me because i was really into bunuel and stuff and i was like you know what i want movies to fucking like you know punch you in the head yeah <laughs> you know i'm not quite as excited about that now <laughs> i need this book i don't have this book it's great it really is a great book and then the other one i've been fetishizing over the last uh like 15 years of my life and I'm still only a quarter way through it which is hilarious uh, is um, uh, Stephen Thrower's Nightmare USA oh, in terms of horror it's my favorite it's my favorite book I own let me put it that way it's huge it's like a giant brick it sits on my table and my problem is I stop reading once I get to something I haven't seen and I wait till I can see it and then I continue reading that's why I'll never finish the book you know what I love about that book is that it, not only is it just amazing and huge but it's the kind of book that the killer in the kind of movie that's in the book might use to like bludgeon somebody because it's so fucking big. Yeah, yeah. But I love it. It's a beautiful book. Yeah, and it's just, you know, you'll see the, it's so cool because he did interviews and he's a British writer, but he'll do interviews with, you know, people who just aren't around anymore. Like there'll be a three-page spread on a movie called The Strangeness. And and I had to look it up and get the VHS. I think Code Red put that out. Yeah, they put it out recently and you're like, what the hell? He's got an interview with the directors and then, and it's just one of those books that, I didn't uh, realize I was in there. Yeah, it's a total treasure trove across America of a period where, you know, there's nothing, I love, I'm saying they'll come across, you know, I love regional filmmaking. I love filmmaking that's specific to wherever it's made not i my the biggest turnoff is hey we're shooting movies in vancouver and toronto to look like la and that cinema you know fuck i that, that's to me the biggest turnoff about movies i love movies that it's about mississippi and it's set in that town and it's a crazy clan movies and mississippi and you're like holy shit this feels dangerous or crazy i love that thing about especially about america i don't know what it is about american geography that has always kind of made me excited in that book is that's what it is you know it's a cross-country trip of all the weird shit that got made when movies were like profitable just to release to drive-ins 
uh, real good stuff. I also, you know, for me, um, magazines, you know, you, you, not everyone kind of raised, I was raised on comics, got me into movies in the first place. And um, one of the magazines that, you know, outside of cult, the cult movie book was Psychotronic Film Guy, Psychotronic Video. Um, but Michael J. Weldon, kind of like Danny Perry, the way he would just encapsulate movies really got my imagination going. And the crazy, that guy really saw some shit, yeah. you know, in some crazy movies. I mean, even the title comes from a piece of crap, you know, Psychotronic <laughs> Man that no one's seen on earth. Like, I don't even know how you get a copy of that thing. Um, but the magazines, the covers of them, and I've been like trying to get the whole set. I, I almost do now. There's only like 41 issues over like 18 years. Um, and it was a fanzine originally, and then it became like this magazine. But the covers are just the most beautiful. If you've never seen this magazine, look it up and just check out the covers online, and you'll probably be moved to want to buy an issue. Yeah, I bought a lot of, uh, I want to say like maybe 20 of them. And now in my head, I'm panicking because I'm like, where the hell did I put that box? <laughs> because I really want to go look at those covers right yeah, now. Yeah, they're, they're so beautiful. They're so, and, but they also had some really cool interviews. Like, um, you know, it was one of the first Monty Hellman interviews I read, uh, Jack Hill interview. Um, is in one of them and sometimes it's just write-ups and you know it, it just there's something uh, really great about that I don't know I, I'm pretty sure he started a store um, in Georgia or something he's you know he's still out there uh, Michael Weldon but that was a magazine that I really loved for the cult stuff and then the you know of mainstream things I, I definitely did like film comment a lot like I I read it a lot but I got to a point in the last few years where I felt like it was so specific to what was playing in New York because it's a magazine associated that it started getting a little frustrating that I couldn't see the stuff I was talking about especially far and stuff that it became a little harder to want to read it you know but i still think they have some great stuff in there and uh you know and it keeps you know it's nice to have a mixture of like you know i love grindhouse i love i love that you know that kind of fangoria you know at a certain point was a great magazine right now it seems like it's not really around it seems at the moment um but you know you change with with the time and magazines maybe are becoming irrelevant i guess because of blogs and websites but it's still something nice about having in your hand i agree um, so that's our favorite, our favorite film books and magazines. So now comes the nitty gritty. So this is probably the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. And I challenge you all to do this in your own homes. Well, see, the thing about it is obviously like any list, it'll change hourly. It's not allowed to change ever. No, it's, it's set in stone. <laughs> because once we record this episode, this of will course. be locked up. We're, probably every episode after will be an amendment. But Yeah, we'll do uh, part two or... I called this, uh, this was kind of the, the challenge for both of us, uh, people who probably love making lists. Uh, I called it, what is your handshake five? Cinematic handshake. Cinematic handshake. So you're meeting somebody uh, as we're meeting you guys, and you're, what are five films? So not your favorite five films, because I'll tell you what, Vertigo isn't one of the films I'm going to mention, and that is, in my opinion, the best movie ever made. So if somebody said, what's the best movie ever made? I'm just going to say Vertigo but it's not on this five, which means this list is more like, what are the movies that really somehow are borrowed into you? How maybe they represent you. Maybe it's just something you think about a lot, or maybe it's from a key moment in your life. I don't know what, what the answer is, but I just know we decide we're only going to talk about five. A couple others might, you know, filter off, but whatever. Yeah, there might be a couple. <laughs> but this was something, you know, I, and I didn't spend, I'll be honest, I, unlike usually with lists, I spent very little time on this almost because I wanted to just, first thing that came to my mind, you know, and yeah, see, it should we'll kind of be sticks. like that. Yeah, I think. So I know. Let's count it down. I don't know if they're in order for you. I don't think they. Yeah, are I did. A, I did a. Well, I mean, kind of, but it's not necessarily a quanti- uh, quality. I mean, anyway, they're they're just five movies. All right. Um, so let me start uh, with. Um, it's kind of a tie, but the the major one is Three O'clock High. Oh man, you know what? I only saw that for the first time this year with uh, Rob G. Oh really? And he met, and I loved it. Yeah, it's 
it's one of those movies. My bodyguard is kind of my tie for this movie. Um, both my bully movies, if you will. But Three O'clock High for me. Um, I saw it on cable, and then I saw it on VHS with one of my really good friends. And it was one of those movies where we we rented the VHS and we watched it. I think two or three times when we got it, and it was just one of those things where we were just like, "What? How do people not? Why is this not like The Breakfast Club? Why? You know?" But we weren't even quite in that place yet. We were just like really psyched. We found this high school movie because if you don't know about Three O'clock High, basically it's like high noon in high school. It's like this guy Jerry Mitchell uh, makes the mistake of tang sort of accidentally. Um, pissing off the new guy this new bully named buddy Ravel, and he challenges him to a fight in the parking lot at the uh at the end of the day at school and it's this whole very stylized um semi it's not really real time but it's it's definitely they're conscious of clocks ticking all the time uh playing out of that entire day and how he tries to get out of the fight and it's one of those movies that um, from the very opening, there's a lot, there's a great shot of like a high angle shot of the kid in bed and the, and the camera comes all the way down to his alarm clock. And he says something like, I, I, I knew right away it was going to be one of those days. It's almost like a film noir sort of, <laughs> but anyway, I can't believe, you know, I can honestly not believe I hadn't even heard of this movie until maybe like this last year. And, and there's something that I started noticing that probably because I grew up in New Zealand and the video stores in New Zealand, there's probably just some titles that never were that common there. I'd love to know if any, if a New Zealanders listening and they're like, Oh no, I saw that film, but I had never, and I had seen all in my mind, eighties teen films. So when I saw it, uh, Rob was doing a birthday party and I remember going, how have I, this is like one of the best made and like better, one of the movies that isn't on my list, but could easily be on the especially list like this is better off dead. It it means the world to me. Love it. I have loved it since, you know, the first time I saw it. Um, and it, it and the watching uh, three o'clock high is like yeah, it's even better made. I mean, it's like a really brilliantly made film, and it has such great payoff at the yeah. end. I mean, Phil Juanu, the director, was a protege of Steven Spielberg's, but I think one of the and I don't know because I'd love to hear commentary, but um, Barry Sonnenfeld, I believe, is, is listed as a lighting consultant. I believe so he was almost the DP. Yeah, it? basically the yeah. DP. And and if you know him, you know he worked with the Coen Brothers and a lot of their crazy, you know, um, frenetic camera stuff. He did Raising Arizona. I think yeah, shot it, yeah. Yep. One of the great frenetic camera movies of the '80s in my mind. Um, and so you, there's a lot of that kind of energy in it, and it is just one of those movies that. Um, I would show to new friends. I would show to girls I was dating. Um, I showed to my kids. I just, it's one of those movies where you want to show it to somebody and see what they think. And if they don't like it, it's not like you're not going to be friends, but there's just something that we're not quite on the same. Yeah. Yeah. But but I've I've got a couple of those. I've rarely found anybody that I've shown it to that didn't like it, to be honest. Yeah, no, I, I got to watch it again now because uh, that's I'm I'm glad that's made your list. Uh, for me, I'll I'll do this one just because we already talked about, it, so I don't have to. We can just keep moving. Uh, you know, I'm putting The Shining on there because it it's just a film that utterly defines me. And I will say this: there's oftentimes, and I can think of a couple friends off the top of my head who both say, oh, "I've never understood the love for The Shining." And whenever I hear that blanket statement, there's nothing I can't relate to more than that. And I'm not going to say they're wrong because you have, especially if you read the book first, I could totally imagine that. Being, sure. But what I am saying is I can't understand it because I'll never understand it because to me, it's as close to we get as what 
movies are the only thing that could ever do that. Whatever that's doing in that film, which is you know tracking shots, going down, following a kid down a hall on a bike, uh, you know taking you into a room of dark, and it's weird. It's just like it has so much going on. And you watch Room Two Three Seven, and actually, you know, most, a lot of people you know didn't necessarily take to that film. But what I loved about that movie, uh, besides the fact that it was about Shining, was the I. It could have been about any great movie that people become obsessed with and, and then start reading into because it's just proof that how much we project ourselves into a movie, you know, especially a movie where it's not all being said. If it hasn't got a lot of exposition and dialogue, there's more openings for us to beam into, you know, and a movie like that where you're following a camera go down the hallway, of course, you're going to start being there with Danny as you go in. And I, so when I hear people say, ah, I never liked that movie, I always look at them and go, I, all right, next. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know what to say to those people. Yeah. It's, 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 it's definitely one of my, it's not, it's not a favorite movie that I yeah. mentioned because I, I, I have a weird, maybe stupidly um, snooty tendency to not champion those films that I feel like get enough love, but I would never, ever deny the power of that movie and how much it means to me. It means I, I feel lot. the same way and I think that's probably why like Vertigo, the two the two biggies that aren't on my list that are like definitely to me the two two of the best movies, Vertigo and um, Night of the Hunter. They're both oh. two movies that I think are two of the best films ever made. Like they will always be in my top probably five but for some reason neither are on my list and I think it's for the same reason like I don't feel the need to champion but The Shining's so part of my DNA now yeah. that I can't leave that one off if you know what I mean. It's, it's I'll, I'll second Night of the Hunter. That movie yeah, is something special. And first time I saw it, I'll be honest, the very first time I saw it, um, I saw it on back to back with Out of the Past on screen and Out of the Past was like magic to me. I was like perfect. Another one of my favorites. But then I saw Night of the Hunter and list. didn't get it. I think the first time I saw it I knew it was cool. I had the same experience. But I didn't get it. Yeah. I had the same experience with it. I just was like this seems so theatrical he's so it's a fairy tale yeah and you're not ready for that because you think it's oh it's noir and then you're like wait a minute and And it's mitchum and i think i have a certain idea of him and but yeah that one over time is just like he's demasculated he becomes like a looney tunes wily coyote character and it's like a weird kids film but then now i remember i showed it to a class once and i remember seeing it through a new lens and i was like oh my god this is one of the most unique things that's ever been created like it's just there's no other movie i can't even think of one movie that's actually like night of the hunter (laughs) you know what i mean and the guy only made the one movie yeah Yeah, one of those yeah it's it's magic but um but it's not on the list (laughs) on the list (laughs) this is the kind of list we're gonna list we're gonna be doing over our, our podcast um, okay, so my next one is another movie that I love to show to people I'm getting to know, and that's After Hours. Um, I, I Sometimes I say it's my favorite Scorsese film, which I know sounds ridiculous. Let me just say, it's my favorite Scorsese film. Oh, look at you. And has always been my favorite Scorsese Oh, look at that. Oh, and is... I don't know why it's not on the list, but uh, anyone, it's probably because of this other film is on my list that it, it's interchangeable. It's one of the the two or three films I always say if somebody doesn't like them I don't trust their taste and humor especially in humor like to me it's one of the funniest oh. movies ever made but it's a certain kind of humor oh my god it was so I th- this movie to me that by the way I had no idea that was true and that just made this podcast even more serendipitous and another friend of ours who uh, who makes a lot of extras on DVDs and made the you're wearing a Dick Miller fan club shirt Elijah Drenner I know it's one of his favorite movies too oh, so there's great. a couple of people it's, and it's funny because they're all kind of similar types of people I don't know what it is that's about that movie really cool. but Griffin Dunn's character <gasps> is having like the most nightmarish night of all time and he's such he's maybe my favorite everyman I've ever seen in a movie yeah because he's kind of a kind of a dick yeah but he's he's not fully sympathetic but you do absolutely empathize with him he's an underdog so he might yeah. be in the yuppie period but he's like almost trying to be like one of them but he's not really one of them yeah there's an there's an, there's that that desperation to connect that he has in running into Rosanna Arquette and just really 
trying to hang out and get laid and whatever he's like, trying to do. Now it would be like a Tinder date gone wrong. Yeah, yes. Because <laughs> it's very much like that, the way they sit. Oh, it man. But yeah, it, it is another one, similarly to Three O'Clock High, incredibly frenetic and stylized and Scorsese just cutting loose as far as the wild stuff he does with the camera. Um, but yeah, there's something about this, the darkness, the sense of humor um, to the movie that I never get tired of. I showed this one to my son. I showed him two i would we had a there's a lot of not so great things about 2016 but for me two things that really i i forgot about is i showed my son taxi driver and after hours in 2016 and he loved both movies and he loved um after hours so much that he was like i want to show this to my friends like he has a movie night sort of regular i was like okay, I don't, you know, I think because he and I, I've been showing him movies since he was six. And I think his taste has developed sort of in, I may have pushed him in a certain direction, you know, and I don't know too many other kids that love Jerry Lewis the way he does and Marx Brothers. <laughs> but funny. so he- He's think, a king of comedy fan. <laughs> I mean, that was one where I showed it to him and he just was like, wow, it was really sad. It's, it's one of the sadder films. Yeah, it's, and I love the movie, Of course you do, you're yeah. a ripper pumpkin. But, it's, and it's funny to hear me say that After Hours is maybe my favorite over King of Comedy, but it's just, I can literally watch it anytime. Yeah, King of Comedy is not meant to be watched anytime. It's it's like a, you watch it one time and go, holy shit, that's one of these great underseen movies and the tension in it is painful, but it's almost like a Todd Solondz movie. But there's also a lot of comedy in there yeah. too, but it's not like After Hours. There's just something about that movie. And uh, yeah, Dick Miller's in it. And, no uh, Lady No is my all-time favorite quote. No Lady No! <laughs> it's just, there's moments of that movie that are burnt into my mind and... And and the best thing of all for somebody listening to that is just a lot of people still don't discover that movie. I think my favorite line in there is when he's talking about the bagel, bagel and cream cheese paperweights. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go get them because there's right now there are papers flying rampant in my apartment because I have nothing to hold them down. With. <laughs> yeah. I said I want to see a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight. Now cough it up. And the ending of the movie is oh how it God. kind of all comes full oh my circle. God. It's beautiful. But for yeah, if you guys haven't discovered that, you've got some real joy. Oh, coming. this is what I was gonna say. I want 2017 to be the year that it comes out on Blu-ray, and I have been angling for Warner Archive to do it for years, and I really hope, I feel like they're going in a cult direction, we've gotten a lot of cult stuff this year already, um, this feels like the year for me. I'm surprised Scorsese couldn't make it happen. I mean, I don't know. I, you I think. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, with that stuff where Warner Brothers controls it, I don't know. But it, I, I want the Blu-ray, and I want it now. Yeah, for those who are listening who don't know, Warner Brothers is one of the harder companies to get you know, sub-license deals with, uh, like Twilight Time. There's all these companies that... It, that's the one company that seems to kind of defend and protect their archive the most, but not necessarily always do something with it. But when they do, I will say people that... Uh, we were talking about labels before, and I forgot to mention Warner Archive, and I think... People, because they started, this is just a minor digression, but because they started in made-on-demand discs, people started to assume that their blue waves were also made-on-demand, and they've always been pressed discs. And to be honest, they've always been some of the best-looking hmm. Blu-rays because they have Warner Brothers motion picture imaging sort of as a built-in part of their um, process. And so a lot of the transfers they do are new scans, and they really take time and care and i feel like they're underrated as far as their blue releases i look forward to bad day at black rock just came oh, out yeah, that's a great movie. anyway sorry i'm getting yeah that's a, no it's a great what's it's your a great what's your next movie sir um so i'm gonna follow because uh, my list uh the three movies this is when i'm when i'm looking at comedy uh if somebody likes two out of these three movies if they like all three we're, we're a home run if they like uh after hours modern romance by albert oh. brooks 
and this movie that is on my list and has always been in my top five and will be till the day I die, um, The Burbs. Oh. And if somebody doesn't get The Burbs, that's fine. You don't have to get The Burbs, but you also don't have to get me. <laughs> and because The Burbs is one of those movies, when I started as a kid, I instantly, I, I knew I was going to grow up to be Tom Hanks. <laughs> and I basically have become him in that movie. You know what I mean? You, you basically, some guy who's going to end up living in the suburbs wearing, you know, dressing gown, missing work, and getting paranoid about his neighbors and, and you know, building a, concocting a horror fiction in his mind. There's something about that movie, and I love so many of Joe Dante's movies. I love Madden, I love Gremlins, I love it. But that movie... It just, it completes me. Absolutely. <laughs> I could not agree more. One that probably should be on my list, and I it's just kind of slipped out of my, I'm yeah. glad it's on your list, because it is, if this cinematic handshake was a little longer, it would be on my list. Joe Dante, um, one of my favorites, having interviewed him and met him in person, and uh, you've met him too, right? Yeah, I've, I've done him on a couple shows. Well, also for the jump cut thing I was talking about, but I've had him on two different shows, but uh, I want, I always would talk about The Shot. Ray, this is Walter. No! <laughs> the crash zoom in out and zoom in out and he's like oh god that's gonna be what they put on my tombstone oh man it's so good <laughs> but they, it's such a great moment because there's just it's so wacky but somehow works on like every level i don't know uh, what it's one of those movies i i can't quite explain and i'm surprised looking back i get why i love it now completely like it's totally me now but man i loved it when i was a kid when i started when it hit theaters i knew i loved that movie and i'm like what a weird movie for young kids to gravitate towards yeah, yeah. i had the same response i think i saw it in theaters in 1989 and i loved it and it has become my favorite joe dante movie and i've told him as such in person and the last time i interviewed him which was like years ago now i was like i would camp out for a criterion blu-ray of the burbs and obviously then the arrow came out later but um yeah i adore that movie another one that i showed to my son loved it did show it to his friends and it just went over like a lead balloon did not yeah. and he was pissed too he was just like he lost at least at that time some respect for his friends because he was just like why are they not into this this is i love this movie yeah i could see that one being one if you screened it to like young people you, it could be hit or miss i have no totally. idea but it's it's just one of those movies that God, it, it so just good. it's it's like perfect comfort food you yeah. know i couldn't agree more and i miss and i'm really miss i can't say because i think tom hanks one of the great stars you know we're one of the great film presences but i really miss his goofy side oh me too because he has you know since, since kind of teaming up with spielberg every movie seems you know very serious and i feel like he's so he's in real life you constantly see you know through twitter and that he's hilarious you know yeah. he's such a funny guy oh man that i miss seeing that like just oddball goof uh canine this guy you know that's got a uh was it canine or turner, 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 turner yeah. at the same time but oh, but um but you know there's just something about his presence in this movie which feels like he's totally unrestrained like he's just being super goofy and when he screams it's just hilarious Oh. Uh, anyway, great, great damn movie. Well, and he and, he and Rick Dukeman together are one of my favorite oh, yeah. duos in yeah. all of eighties film. Yeah, completely. And, and Dukeman, rest his soul. Yeah, a totally underrated guy, and will forever be in my pantheon of favorite actors from The Burbs. I mean, obviously he shows up in Die Hard, he shows yeah. up in Last Boy Scout, and he, you know, but from The Burbs, he earned a place in my forever, you know, after. And definitely favorite. I mean, it might be one of my all-time favorite lines is that means that they know that we know that they know that we know. You know, like that moment. <laughs> well, ah! My favorite is, do, do you think a home thermostat's supposed to go to 5,000 degrees or whatever it is? Oh, my God, so good. Yeah, uh, that mean, I'm, okay. This is a good start. It means yeah. we're probably going to be able to do a show. I think so. Okay, so number the number three, arbitrarily for me, uh, is Rock and Roll High School. Oh, cool. Yeah, that one to me is... Alan Arkish? Yes. I 
have again another guy I've interviewed and and gushed to him about how much I love the movie. I I love the Ramones, but it was because of Danny Perry and the cult movies books that I discovered the Ramones. So in that way, I owe him doubly because the movie for me is pure cinematic joy, but but not even just the kind of movie I'll sit and watch. And people talk about watching something and having a smile on their face. The whole I literally almost can't watch that movie without smiling the whole time. I haven't seen it in like 15... I think I've seen the sequel more recently. I haven't <laughs> seen like 15, maybe more years. I am totally going to rewatch it again just for that feeling. Oh my gosh. It just, it's one of those for me that it just, like you said, comfort food, but the Ramones music in there just really captivates me. And it's so silly and goofy, but and, and, it, and it's quick too. I mean, there's yeah. a lot... I mean, there's like a... There's a streak of like 30s um, screwball comedy running through it and some other things. And it's just really, I don't know. That, that the, other, the other film that I often think about that's not a comedy, but a high school rebellion movie is Over the Edge, which is another one, uh, I, yeah. also a Danny Perry cult uh-huh. movie, that I love, but is much more the serious side of yeah. rock. And what if we blew up our high school? What if we really blew up? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, um, well, I think in years later, Pump Up the Volume feels like its own, its own kind of retelling of that story, which I is love also that, a great movie. I love that movie, too. It's funny. Yeah. I've come around, like, I loved it in high school, watched it in college, thought it was the most ridiculous thing ever. Like, how could kids in high school be, think they're so dramatic? And then now I see it again, and I'm like, oh, I, I absolutely love this movie. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, around. it ties into all those. I'm going to rewatch that one. I, it's, it's been a long time, and I, I love that feeling when you've forgotten parts of the film. You know, it's it's a great thing to revisit. Um, my next one's uh, a little more serious. Uh, this will come as no surprise to anyone who listens to anything I've ever done in my life. Okay. Uh, I've been a cheerleader from this film well before it got its kind of uh, resurgence, and I take uh, utter pride in that because it's such a special film, and that's Possession from 1981, not the crazy Dybbuk box Jewish uh, horror from a couple <laughs> years ago, uh, starring Sam Neill as well, Johnny from Andre Zulowski. I can even pronounce it right by now. Um, but this movie like um, changed the way I saw what horror, the word horror could be, because I was so used to it being um, like an escape um, you know, for fantasy and escape or to get scared. And I remember seeing this film when I was uh, probably about 15 years ago or so on VHS. Had, had heard a little bit, heard it was interesting, but didn't know what to expect. And I had no idea. I was about to watch, you know, literally a, a Kramer versus Kramer cranked up to 100 and then thrown in with crazy dick octopus monsters. Uh, you know, there's nothing that could prepare you for what this movie is. I mean, now it's, now it's getting this, um, uh, it's uh, kind of being critically reappraised and in the positive, but at the time it was, you know, absolutely treated like dog shit in America. It was cut from 123 movies to 80, uh, 81 minutes. So that's how much it was cut out of it. And they, wow. they doubled down on just making, uh, keep all the horror parts, get rid of anything that uh, is art, you know, arty. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually trying to track down the American version, which is a lot harder to find now because I'd really like to kind of compare and compare them now that I've, because I am these, I started with the uh, international cut first time I saw it. Um, but the emotions in this movie are so intense. And this isn't a movie oh. like the Burbs where you're going to want to revisit. Even I don't want to uh, revisit it very often. I think I might've seen it enough now to not want to for a few years, but it's, um, it's, it's just totally unique. And, and I can totally see somebody watching this and going, what the hell was that? I don't believe it. They're yelling. The performances seem over the top, but it's all done from a place that I can tell when I watched this movie, I knew 
that it was real. I knew that whoever made this movie felt the stuff. He's yeah. not making jokes about it. This is a guy who's been burned <laughs> and is making something about relationships and marriage and, and how there's so much more at stake if there's a kid involved. Oh. But then also adding a fantastic horror element that is kind of Lovecraftian in the sense of like, it's never fully explained. I have no idea. It could mean a thousand different interpretations, you know, from some pretty obvious ones to like, you know, it could be something really out there. And, you know, it's, it's rewarding if you get the... um Mondovision, another great company who's mostly just doing his titles, his Jurelowski's titles. Um, you know, they there is a great interview in there where he kind of talks about the background of it, and it's, it's beat for beat. You know, stuff that happened to him. You know, he came back from a shoot, and his wife was with the guy who's just like this, like new agey guy, and she left him with a kid, and suddenly he's he's alone and terribly depressed. So he was channeling these very real feelings uh, into a movie. And it's like, I, I always describe it to people. It's like a primal scream of a movie. It's just like something screaming into the abyss and it's just happened to be caught on tape somehow, but it's, it's like nothing else. And if you haven't seen it, I would, you know, uh, go straight to the Mondovision copy. Don't, don't buy anything else. Don't watch any, you know, uh, cheaper versions if you can for the first time or, or see it on the screen. Uh, and yell at me later <laughs> for good or bad. Uh, yeah. I mean, there, I, I don't feel quite the way you do about it, but I another movie that I cannot deny the resonance of, and yeah. when I saw it, um, and the the fighting scenes, the yelling scenes, I guess you could say they're over the top. But to me, I was like, this feels so real. This yeah. feels, and maybe it's my own. Maybe I've just been in some relationships that got a little heated. But it also I, depends when you see it. I mean, yeah, it's oh, one, yeah. it's a movie that I've oh, seen yeah. in the the three or four times I've watched it because I don't watch I don't overwatch movies like that. I try to keep them special. Um, First time I saw it, I was like 21, no responsibilities, and it affected me. I was like, whoa, what a great movie. I love it. So fun. And later on, it started right after a breakup, and like, holy shit. And then I see it now, you know, uh, married with kids, lots, everything at stake. Your whole world's at stake. So watching it when they argue, it's like, no, no, I know what those arguments are like, and you have to get over them if you're going to keep going the next day. That's what adulthood is really fucking hard because yeah. of those kind of... So I, I identify a lot with what's, what's in there. And I think so for people, wherever you are in your life, there's so many different ways to read a movie like that um and i'm desperate in my life my number one thing i want to do is uh get a hold of the script which is impo almost impossible it's at a library in um ohio frederick tutin uh, who was the co-writer of it still lives in new york he wrote a lot of tintin uh books that's what he's famous for and uh he, the only way you can read the read it it's on closed reserve you'd have to go to the he won't let it out doesn't want copies of it out there for whatever reason but i'm so fascinated because it is like literally for me it's like one of the definitions of what pure cinema is to me but i can't imagine it on paper it's one of those yeah. movies, i'm like what would that look like as a script i have no idea so i'm really curious to read it one day but yeah. um if you haven't even seen it still, look it up. Look up Possession. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you're listening to this because you, you are taking shots every time I mention it, I'm sure I'll mention it less on this podcast, but it has been mentioned many times. Yeah, it's not surprising. It had to come up. It's, oh, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Um, so, number two, as it were, um, I mentioned them briefly before in that I inundated my son with these guys when he was very young, and I was very pleased that he took to them, and that's the Marx Brothers um, I'm going to, I'm going to say duck soup, uh, is, is one of the ones, but I mean, it's animal, probably my favorite. Duck yeah. Soup. I mean, it's, and it's still remarkably prescient today. Uh, <laughs> especially, um, it's always good to watch around election time, but, um, I mean, animal crackers and horse feathers are both masterpieces in my opinion, but duck soup is just, um, it's really stripped down. Liam McCary directed it and he, he trimmed out some of their, 
I, I feel like he pushed them to be less indulgent, whereas Animal Crackers has some musical numbers and some things that I love. Um, Duck Soup is just go, 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 and it's just classic Marx Brothers. It has all their trademark uh, witticism stuff. It has some incredible physical gags. The mirror gag is still one of the great, yeah. for me, things in cinema that you can watch. And big political satire. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's still so funny and so... I don't know. Uh, I, I, one of those that I can watch anytime. Now, would uh, would the Marx Brothers be your favorite uh, of the kind of uh, film early comedians? Because I'm a Buster Keaton guy. Oh boy, it's tough. even though I love Charlie Chaplin, but Buster Keaton just as, in terms of humor, always just completely connected I, to me. You know, I love Buster Keaton a lot. Uh, I love Harold Lloyd. I love Chaplin. Those guys are all. And and if I'm going to lean more towards a comedic sensibility and the silent guys, I'm going to go Keaton for sure. Yeah. But for me, the Marx Brothers is probably tops along with uh, W.C. Fields. Uh, a movie I didn't include here but is is probably a handshake movie for me is It's a Gift, which is to me probably my favorite comedy of all time. And, and so it should be on this list, but ultimately Marx Brothers is more me. Brace yourself. Yeah. I, I have another cinematic black spot and that's wc fields i mean you know he's but i think that's because it's a very american no i've only, i think i've only ever seen one film and it was in film school i i think i need to i haven't seen the one you just mentioned well that's he's a guy that i mean not all the films are uh, amazing but i know joe dante for instance is a huge fan of it's a gift and he ran it at the new beverly when when he was doing his series um it's i think you'd love it it's 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 a he's a huge influence on woody allen he's a huge influence on a lot of people and the comedy is really based on characters annoying each other, and it's just anyway. That's a digression, but um, W.C. Fields and the Marx Brothers uh, are two really core um, things for me. You know, just as far as my sense of comedy. And I'm guessing that neither of us uh, somehow put a Woody Allen film on our list. No, not in my so handshake. No. If you were going to include a Woody, this is our other. This is how our show is always going to be. We're going to digress because we were talking about Woody before we came on here, and we're Boy. talking. The, you know, just there's a period in that where he's making, you know, for 10 years in a row, just the best movie after. We movie. were talking about crimes and misdemeanors for it. That's yeah. pretty close to the top. But um, I still kind of love Annie Hall and I still kind of love Manhattan. I mean, I know it's it's kind of the stock answer, but those. No, I mean, Annie Hall is like a great, well, you know, I, I think obje- if you're being objective, I think it's the best. But crimes and misdemeanor is the one I think is the, like for me the best. And then Stardust Memories is my weird, my favorite. Like the film that I'm like, oh, there's something magic about. And also I love Suspiria. I love Jessica Harper's in it. Oh, yeah. And it's shot in black and white, and it's about a director. So it, there's something about, it's very cinematic. But, man, we'll do a whole episode on what do you want to Well, and I love, <laughs> this ties into Annie Hall. He's got that whole, that great scene where, you know, they're in line uh, at the movies, and they're talking about Fellini and, you know, Satyricon. It's all so indulgent. And Stardust Memories is <laughs> yeah, clearly yeah. just, obviously it's Fellini, but yeah, it's, it's also it's very eight and indulgent. Half. It's his eight and a half, right? Fully <laughs> indulgent. And I love it. And it was funny, actually, when the Twilight Time Blu-ray came out, I got to show that to my wife for the first time. And uh, I think it's one that she will come around to more um, as years go by, but she liked it. But it was fun to sit with her and watch it um, because she hadn't seen it. Yeah, that's I haven't picked that up yet, but that's a, that's a great film. Um, so we're up to number two. Okay, so um, I'm going to go with, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time, and I only started about, I don't know, about eight years ago. Um, and, I, and it's one of those great experiences where I turned on the TV, and it was halfway through a movie. And 
I am like a guy who won't go into the movie theater if I've missed the trailers. Speaking of Woody part. Allen. Yeah, I'm like, I'm pretty OCD with that kind of stuff because I want the whole experience. You know, if I'm going to a movie, uh, I want the whole movie. And I, I was flicking the channels and I was in New Zealand uh, and, and it was on. And suddenly these characters were in a speedboat and I could not stop watching this movie. And it was uh, Montgomery Clift, Elizabeth Taylor. And I was just watching these young people. And for the rest of the movie, I didn't know what the movie was called. So I watched the rest of the movie and I was like, I, and I forgot about it. So I, I finished watching it. It's like, man, that was, that was amazing. But I didn't know what the context of the movie was because I hadn't seen the first half. And a couple, maybe a year or two went by and I just saw a flash of the poster and I was like, oh shit, that's that movie. Or maybe it was a David Thompson book and it had the image on the cover. I was like, oh shit, that's that movie. So I watched it. And when I watched that movie, it became my favorite classical Hollywood film of all time. Like, and, and that, to, you know, there are just so many great movies. The fact that this is the only one on my list of five, it's called A Place in the Sun by George Stevens. Um, and I saw it again recently on a screen. And I think what it is um, with Mo- Montgomery Cliff and Elizabeth Taylor, there's these moments where I think it's the closest I've ever seen on, on a screen to getting across what desire is in a moment cinematically, like how you can feel like if somebody, a guy or a girl, whatever it is you desire, that feeling you want more than anything, like a burning thing inside, especially of us when you're a certain age, you know, you're 20 or a 17 or whatever it is, where they somehow use close-ups in this to make you feel that. And he finds these close-ups of Liz Taylor leaning in and there's something in the way he shoots that where it all feels like you would literally commit murder for that feeling, she's she's never looked better. Yeah, than she it's does it's unbelievable. And then Shelley uh, <laughs> Shelley Winters is the uh, the actual girlfriend slash wife character who he's uh, he's uh, put in a predicament of kind of it's actually very uh, similar to Sunrise, the story of Sunrise uh, by Murnau, which is also I think one of the best things ever created for for you know early cinema in terms of a basic story of falling in love with somebody else, but you've kind of got, you're committed to a woman who you're not really into. And I've always thought if they had reversed the casting, how fascinating that would be if you're with the ridiculously hot woman, but then wanting to socially climb, say with a richer woman, but in this Liz Taylor's both rich and hot. (laughs) And so it's kind of a no brainer. I feel terrible talking about it now, but it, there's something about that movie that it's just, it gets what desire is. It gets, it it also feel like Woody Allen, even crimes and misdemeanors is playing off ideas like this. Um, if you haven't seen wow. it, uh, never connected those two, but that's George Stevens is a really terrific. He's of, of the journeyman directors who doesn't isn't considered like an auteur really. Uh, fantastic, almost any he, he doesn't make bad movies. Yep. You know, he's a craftsman to the help. But this movie's special. Uh, Montgomery Clift also became maybe my favorite screen actor at this. I mean, Mitchum. You know, I'm a huge Mitchum fan, but there's something about Clift in this and The Misfits. I love him in Red River too. Yeah, in River, yeah, he is he is really remarkable. Um, but you know, I just and my favorite story about this movie because I became I fell in love with this movie. Then I read there's a book called Zeroville by uh, Steve Erickson where it's about you, you'll 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 love it. I mean, it's a cinephile's book. It's about a guy who moves to L.A. in like 19. Oh, I can't remember if it's in the city. It's it's right when Manson the Manson crimes are happening. They're happening as the backdrop to it. And this he's not quite right in the head there's something wrong with this your protagonist uh and he's got a shaved head 
and he gets a tattoo of the moment of a place and sun on the back of his head <laughs> of the moment where, that I'm talking about where she leans in to kiss Montgomery oh Cliff. God. And he gets this tattoo on his head. So then it's about his f- fueling kind of madness of cinema and he becomes obsessed by movies. And I've heard that James Franco was a fan of this book and bought it and was going to act in it. And this could be saying you see, but it has some, if you're, if you're li- listening to this at this point, <laughs> it means you're into this. This is the stuff just like us. We're, we're obsessed by this. This is that kind of book where only, it's like written for people like us. Like it's it's a novel. It's a it's narrative. It's kind of crazy, but man, it, it really taps into it. But um, so that's one one example. But the my favorite story, uh, I've ever read in a book was a book on Cassavetes. Um, and he he talks about kind of his shift from being an actor to becoming a director. He's another one of those my favorite filmmakers. Even though none of his movies individually would ever make a list like this, it's yeah. more like his collective thing yeah. than an individual film. But he talks about he went to a he 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 writes it's just such a great passage. He goes, you know, one day I went to the movies. He's and he's only been acting at this point. And I, I just went to see whatever was on that day. It was like eleven a.m. and I walked in and it was called A Place in the Sun. I watched the movie. And I came out and I tore up my ticket and I spat on the ground. I was so fucking pissed off. I hated it. He's like, I just hated the fucking movie. And he goes, and I don't know what it was, but I was so mad. I walked back in and I watched it again. And he goes, and then I walked out and I still kind of pissed off. And I went in again. And he said he saw it five times that day. And when he walked out, he realized it was the best movie he'd ever seen. Oh, man. I and and I can't articulate what he means by it. But he goes, after he saw that, he, he thought he probably would want to make movies. Oh. So he saw something in that that at first fucking provoked him like a, a stick to a bear, whatever it is. I, I still can't really, but I love the way, I love that it was, you know, he's having this experience with a movie and it's a bee in the bonnet and he, and eventually it becomes, he sees that when it's something special. Uh, I, I'll try to, I'll try to dig it up to see if there's any more to that story, but it, it, it's a great, you know, movies like that. And I, I have a nice poster. You've been to my place. I got an old Spanish poster of that, and that's like one of my favorite things I have. Yeah, I, Another movie I adore. I absolutely adore. Yeah. It's just so good. So uh, last one. It's not our number one. It's just our last one we're mentioning. I mean, this one happens to be kind of high on my personal list anyway, but again, these are all movies that I like to show people and kind of get a gauge. I mean, in this particular case, um, I have this relationship with Howard Hawks that started when I was in college. He, I, 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 st- I took a film theory class, and my teacher was this woman who was just obsessed with Hawks. Mm. So we saw Red River, we saw The Searchers, we saw Rio Bravo. And not only did I not know who Hawks was, but I didn't really know John Wayne. I was just kind of like, I had an idea of him, but I didn't really get it. And then I saw Red River and I saw The Searchers and I saw Rio Bravo and I said, holy shit, John Wayne is something else. And I get it now. And I fucking love him. And Rio Bravo in particular... Mm really grabbed me and I, th- I can't remember if I found out it was Tarantino's favorite movie or one of his favorite yeah. movies um, I remember I came when I was working at the video store in college which is about the time I was taking this class I came across a list of it was either in a book or a magazine where he was naming some of his favorite movies um, stuff like Fandango and Big Wednesday and the Breathless remake um, I used to have the list memorized I can't remember but he'd have a little quote about everyone and he said something about Rio Bravo that was like when I'm getting serious about a girl I show her Rio Bravo and she better fucking like it <laughs> and so I, I again I can't remember if I saw it Chicken or the Egg before that but I saw it and I absolutely loved it I mean you want to talk about pure cinema the opening of that movie is just it's it's wordless and it really is just characters walking from one saloon to another and there's a there's a murder and um 
and John Wayne. Um, anyway, um, it's, see, I haven't seen that one since. That's that's one I did see in college, and I've seen The Searchers so much more since, like on the big screen. And I and I think as a performance from John Wayne, that's such a great performance because yeah. it's it's such a dark turn. Oh yeah, and he's playing a very you know he's a doomed character. That was another thing that turned me on John Wayne was seeing The Searchers yeah. and going, wow, the ending is, top top five endings of all time. The last shot when I we mean, talk about final shots in movies, like and the another shot that you'll see aped over and over and over. But again, you're you're making me need to watch Rio Bravo again yeah, because it's been so long. Rio Bravo for me is a much more uh, an entertainment. It's it's yeah. an entertainment, but it's got all the the signature stuff, the things that my teacher would talk about, which is you know his um, penchant for professionalism and you know having people. Um, all the, the characters in his movies always being wanting to be the best and and having amateurs get in the way and, and usually get killed. You know, it's interesting. I, one of the best uh, classes I was ever um, around was somebody who was looking at uh, Hawks to Jean-Pierre Melville to Michael Mann. And it was a Michael oh, Mann auteur cool. class and how all three are the same thing. It's uh, Hawks is doing professionalism, male professionalism, all these experts. Then Jean-Pierre Melville, that's exactly what all his crime films are about. These experts, precise, uh, you know, uh, groups of men trying to, they all have their expertise. And then Michael Mann, uh, those early, early crime films are like Thief and stuff are yeah. literally the same thing. And I, it was great to see that kind of, and they're all influenced by each other. Like each filmmaker loved the previous, you know. So man loves Hawks. And and Melville, I think. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Melville, I get. Hawks, yeah. I can see. Although I feel like um, man has a streak of fatalism in his movies yeah. that yeah. isn't necessarily in Hawks. But but yeah, that totally makes sense. Well, yeah, he's missing the love, the, the passion, of, you know, the jour de vivre yeah. <laughs> of things like his co-fighters. Like. Yeah, I just, for me, Rio Bravo, though, it's a long movie, but it doesn't feel long. And it's got things in it that should take me out. Like there's a couple the singing sequences with... Um, uh, man, why am I blanking? Ricky Nelson and Dean Martin, and they are just fantastic. They come at a point in the movie. I mean, Tarantino calls this one in Days and Confused hangout movies, and it's just this idea that you're just hanging out with these characters, and part of that would be you hanging out with them in the jail while they're wall while they're sort of bottled up, you know, trying to keep this guy um, in jail until he can get picked up, and so they decide to sing a little song, you know, and it's just uh, for me just absolutely cinematic um catnip it's just something i love to watch and it's one of my favorite and i hope it plays on a big screen so i can you know have an excuse to rewatch now yeah i highly recommend that i've seen it on the big screen two at least two times but um the blu-ray is pretty solid and it's always one that i can just sit down and watch anytime um so the yeah these lists are impossible to do well i've got a funny one here because it's just going to say lynch film <laughs> now i will give you one to be precise but i will say there's no filmmaker uh that's had a bigger effect on my my loving of movies in the last like you know 20 years like once i discovered david lynch you know it's easily my favorite filmmaker of all time in terms of just like each film felt like wow i got this treasure of a movie and just his way of seeing the world uh i'm gonna i'm gonna lay it down and say it's blue velvet but i can honestly say i think lost highway is the one that uh there's something I, I just love about that movie, and then Eraserhead is, Eraserhead is on a big screen. There's nothing in the history of movies like Eraserhead on a big screen. You sing it on DVD, video. If that's all you've ever seen, that's great. But I saw it one time on a cinema, and I was like, "Holy fucking shit!" The last 20 minutes, the sound design and the imagery of that movie is just—it's like a, an assault of creativity. 
and it's just like nothing else for a first film and a guy takes five years to construct a movie like that. But the thing I think that's special about Blue Velvet, and especially if you look at a career, is it came after a major failure, something that should, would have ended most careers being uh, Dune. And he, he, the fact that Dino De Laurentiis deserves some sort of award for trusting in a guy who had just bombed for him and like lost him all the money and giving a guy complete artistic freedom, complete. Like he didn't have to answer to anything. He probably just had a budget and that's it. And he made a film that is mixing all the best things of a razor and lost Iowa and all these movies, but then taking it into suburbia and making a film that's set in like this distorted leave it to beaver world. This is what like, you know, becomes Lynch, you know, Lynchian is, is starts to be defined here. And we wouldn't have twin peaks without, you know, blue velvet's the roadmap for that, that series. And there's something in that movie that even though I don't like watching it too often, uh, you know, I always think about moments of it and I, I just think it's it's completely unique, and I think it shows in the effect it had on my all-time favorite movie review, which is Roger Ebert, you know, crying, uh, crying in his soup about how personally offended he was by the film. And I love, you know, later Ebert I really love. Uh, I think he became a really great film critic, but I actually do think early on, on Roper and Ebert and Roper, he wasn't a great film critic in some ways. I, I think his response to that movie was so personal and so upset that it makes you realize, well, there's something going on with that movie then, and there's something going on with you, which is fascinating because it really got under, if you haven't seen it, look look that up. It's it's a, it's a great reaction. But um, I think it's really, uh, you know, I think he's one of the great American artists, and, you know, I can't believe we're going to see more Twin Peaks and uh, from him in, you know, twenty year, 21 years after he finished this thing that was another big reason I'd say I'm here as, as a kid discovering that show and being a little too young for it just just a little and it kind of you know uh, going along that warp ride so it could be it could really be uh, many lynch films but it would have there's always going to be a lynch film in my in my cinematic handshake yeah that's another one that really could easily be on my list i mean it ties into cult movies with the razor yep, head and he and kubrick were for me before i took those film classes um I, they were the guys that made me sort of subconsciously start to understand what auteur theory was kind of about. Whether you believe in it or not, the idea that a director has a certain stamp that they put on a movie. These two guys, you saw those movies, and and I feel like a lot of people say that about certain auteurs, and I feel like you could say that certain themes and things come through, but visually and thematically and all the way across the board, I feel like Kubrick films... And Lynch films are so specific to those directors. Well, and they're artists made. Like the the ultra theory is a funny one because there's different interpretation, different versions. But to see it in a studio model, so if it's John Ford, it's different because these guys making you know movie after movie, uh, they didn't always get full control of the work, but then they had to shoot it in a way that is leaving a stamp, and so you can see a stamp over. But they don't have like complete artistic control. So Kubrick and Lynch had complete. So you are seeing movies fairly besides Dune, you know, unfiltered by that artist, and so there's no doubt about it. That it's the same with Tim Burton's early stuff. That it's just Wes Anderson stamp. Yeah, you see it. Quentin Tarantino stamp. It, it, there's to me no question of that the author, but it's more interesting. I think the you know when you get into those models like those guys who had no like uh, maybe a Jacques Tenier or something who had no real control, didn't write scripts. And just got given a project, and then you watch it, and you can see that it was by them every time. That's like a miracle <laughs> that, that people were able to bend, 
you know, movies, not always successfully and always uh, identifiable, but I think that's what's so cool about movies. But yeah, you're right. I, I agree. Like Lynch and Kubrick, um, you know, and a few others when I was young, you, because it wasn't hard to see. Scorsese, I think, was another Scorsese, one. yeah, you saw the patterns. You, yeah. you didn't even need, an, you know, you didn't need film class to, to see that. And, uh, you know, it's exciting. I suspect Lynch probably won't make another movie. Just my gut tells me that Twin Peaks might be th- as good as it gets uh, from him because he seems to have a lot of other interests these days with music. And, you know, I'm, I've been less excited about his digital foray into digital uh, filmmaking, but we'll see. Who knows? You know, that's what great artists do. They sometimes go off in a direction you don't necessarily want, but it, it could yield, you know, some master uh, masterful result at some point. Um, and you know, it's, my heart's breaking a little bit that this list is ending and I didn't mention RoboCop. <laughs> Because if I had this, if the 1980s were on fire right now, and you sent me into the <laughs> 1980s and said, "I love the idea of a decade <laughs> being on fire," by the way, if it was on fire and I could save one movie, I'm saving RoboCop, and I'm not even kidding. Because oh. I think that movie is just like the best satire, and just it's got everything, man. It's action, it's satire, it's just it's, it's too good, and it's come around again and again, more relevant than ever. Yeah, Verhoeven uh, in general, man. Yeah, oh yeah, a guy who I I mean I want to believe he's a just a fucking genius but i feel like some of the stuff as far as the satire and commentary i can't believe it's all him but maybe maybe but, it's well the him. reason i guess we have no choice is because it's consistently in every movie it's true i mean you look at it and you look at starship troopers you look at yeah. um i mean yeah it's it's definitely something about him he's it, got something he likes provoking but anyway so you know so hey well you're not getting out now without 80s are on fire motherfucker <laughs> you gotta save an 80s movie <laughs> is it gonna be three o'clock high what's they're all burning <laughs> oh god i don't know i mean every I, time you delay another film burns breakfast club just burn you oh, can't have Jesus. it uh i mean maybe i guess it's gonna be after hours I okay saved, okay man. you saved it but you just let all of john hughes movies burn <laughs> uh better off dead no longer oh that's sad man we even let the burbs burn. This oh, is just sad. Yeah, that's but really the good cool. news is we have After Hours and Robocop forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, real quick, the one that I'm bummed I left off this, miss, this list is The Long Goodbye. I haven't lo- talked about Oh, oh uh, man, I Altman. share that love. Yeah, I haven't talked about Altman at all, but Long Goodbye is a top five all-time personal favorite for me. And I'm going to hit you with, I have two, and they're both very similar, because the other one is uh, California Split. Oh, my God. Both Elliot Gould movies, I think they're my two favorite Altman films. I think they're probably my two favorites, too. And if I ha- if somebody ever said, oh, if you had to pick someone to play you in a movie, I, every time oh, it would be Elliot Gould. Because there's something about Gould, the way he's able to talk by himself with the cat. Oh, my God. Oh, it's such Few a Few people movie. could pull off the, I mean, people talk about Steve McQueen, the essence of cool. For me, it's fucking Elliot Gould yeah, in the 70s. I'm, you cannot touch him, man. I'm so with you. I think it's a certain type of person. There are probably people more machismo, like, you know, want to drive cool cars and stuff, who McQueen would appeal to more. I guess. But I'm totally with, especially when, you know, not later Elliot Gould, and that's, I mean, he's fun. He's always yeah, a great actor. I always actor. love seeing him. But, but a guy like with the big hair and the suit, and he's all unkempt, and he he seems lost in his own head. Yeah. But there's something about him. Uh, I, I'm totally with you. I, and Altman in general, yeah. He's made a lot of just radical and amazing movies, but Long Goodbye. I think the more focused he went, the more interested I was. Yeah. You know? And I almost had a Cassavetes-like reaction to Long Goodbye the first time. I wouldn't say, I didn't see it in the theater, but I wouldn't say that I would have walked out and ripped up my ticket. Yeah. But I was like, eh, it was okay. And the more I've seen it, the more it has completely and totally, you know, um, captivated me. And from the very beginning, when they're tying the the theme 
through all those different scenes. You know, he goes into the grocery store and it's playing on the music. I mean, that is one of the most brilliant touches in a movie I've ever seen. I have you it. been, I mean, living in LA, have you been up to that area where I haven't, although I saw the apartment was up for rent at one point recently. And yeah, I was like, from a friend of mine, Stacey Lane Wilson, she was a uh, house sitting a house and I went up there and, and I realized, Oh my God, this is the area. It had the weird little elevator thing. Oh and boy. I realized where I was. Oh boy. And that was one of my favorite LA moments where I was like, Oh God, I'm wearing long goodbye. Where's all the topless hippie girls <laughs> and the brownies. Oh, so good. Uh, anyway, man, that's a lot of cinema, and we haven't even talked about Topo and Jedi. I mean, there's just so much. Thankfully, we got a show and many episodes <laughs> to fill with work. stuff. Yeah, we can we can we can burn other decades and save one movie. <laughs> uh, well, you know, thanks for listening. Uh, this is our first uh, episode, and you know, this was our. We wanted to give you something, a reference point for things we love, because you, we, we might not kind of quite do it quite like this every episode, but this is a lot of fun. Yeah, no, this is great. This is great. And and it was fun to not know what was going to be on Yeah, we didn't, so we didn't share any of this events. Uh, obviously, once we figure out uh, exactly where this is go- where you're going to be, besides iTunes and stuff, where you can see this, we'll fill- hit you with more information, especially uh, like a blog page and things like that. Because uh, one thing we're going to definitely want is we're going to want to know your uh, cinematic handshake five. So we'll probably do that over Twitter. Yeah, we have uh, a, once we're we, up and run. We have a Twitter. It's Pure Cinema Pod. If you want to hit us up there, your move, creep. We're very excited that our podcast is part of the Now Playing Network, which you can find at nowplayingnetwork.net, along with other great shows on film and music, including one of my favorite podcasts at the moment, which is Supporting Characters with host Bill Ackerman, a peek behind the curtain of film culture and the people who are keeping film culture alive through uh, podcasting, writing about films, putting on film festivals, uh, whatever happens that isn't filmmaking itself for the most part. Uh, It's a great show for cinephiles and a must-listen Uh, And in a roundabout way, it's how I came across this network and how we ended up here. Uh, So we're looking forward to doing this show for you every week. Uh, Tune in next week and keep your cinema pure. (laughs) 